and prevention in the Vietnamese capital. Okay, that's because so, uh, America is trying to show that we love all of the China's neighbors, <laughs> and we're your friend. And you know, and, oh, and by the way, Vietnam just received you know two million <laughs> Sinovac doses from China. So it's ba basically. As, as an American living in Southeast Asia now for many years, um, Southeast Asia is on the, just like Singapore, and Singapore does it better than anybody, of playing neutral between China and the U.S. because China's a huge economic partner. America is a big uh, political partner, and they have to try and play friendly with both. and. Um, And basically, uh, VP Harris is on the tour there right now because, and she, well, it's, you know, she, as soon as she met with the prime minister of Singapore, and, and he himself is quite influential in Southeast Asia with the other countries, because the other Southeast Asian countries look to Singapore as kind of a guiding light as to, you know, um, you know, they're incredibly well-run uh, country. And... So, you know, how Singapore goes could influence how the others, you know, uh, consider their next moves. Thailand is right in the middle. Vietnam is is also has uh, one foot in, the, in, you know, kind of on each side. Uh, Tokyo does not. Tokyo is 100% <laughs> with America. Tokyo, Japan really doesn't have much fondness for China in any shape, way, or form. It is very... Uh, in fact, it might be the only, one of the only countries that has a less love for China than America. So um, then you have the Philippines, which used to be kind of friendly with China until China got a little too strong with the South China Sea stuff. And then now they're letting America open a, a, a military base, which Japan also has in the south of Japan. And And then you've got, you know... The, Korea the, is one of the most complex. Korea right? is super But, complex, yeah. And but Vietnam is generally a little more U.S. If if we use the red and blue colors, red meaning China, blue meaning U.S. You know, there's shades of purple in there for sure. Um, and Thailand is the one that both countries are really courting quite heavily and then this Viet vietnam as well to a degree both both i mean southeast asia just stands to benefit you get both both major powers you know kind of whining and dining uh the southeast asian countries and of course they kind of benefit from that position and um so that's a lot of what's going on at the moment with this tour that's one one kind of thought to have in in mind when uh the vp is doing the tour of southeast asia as she's doing at the moment Chris is back. Hello. Chris, we have an interesting um, stuff to discuss this session. And it looks like Lauren's been here before. And there's somebody with uh, laser eyes named DJ Teflon who's joining for the first time uh, as the newbie on stage. Everybody else is a, is, a, is a bit of a regular. Lauren has joined once before, but... Welcome. Yeah. Welcome back. And where did... Uh, hello, DJ Teflon. Have you been? Thank you, thank you for accepting me. I've sure. been trying to get on stage for a few weeks now. Oh, <laughs> I, I've not noticed your maybe with a different image. I've not noticed your image before. Okay, 
it's a pleasure. Yeah, good to have you here. Thank you. Um, if you could, if you if you wish, you feel free to just give us a quick update so we kind of know what you're all about. Or you can pass. Okay, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm based in the UK. Um, I'm a business owner. I've got a juice company, uh, also a DJ, and um, recently got into this stock investing and got into crypto as well. Um, mm -hmm. I do find your headlines very useful. Cool. Um, so I've been listening. I've been joining um, for a few weeks now. So, yeah, cool. I'm just here. Okay. Well, we definitely will have some crypto news uh, as we always do. And hopefully you can feel free to chime in on anything that uh, you care to. That's how we do it. And anyone in the audience as well, free, feel free to raise your hand. Welcome back, uh, Mabana and Ken. And um, let's get into this, shall we? Uh, let's do this. Yeah, where's, where's the air horn? Let's make it official here. I've got too, too many sound files. So the, the biggest story at this very moment is from CNBC that Microsoft says that Xbox cloud gaming will expand beyond PC and mobile to its Xbox Series X, Xbox Series S, Xbox One consoles this holiday season. Um, so basically, the, they're getting excited about Xbox or Christmas. And they need to come up with uh, new features to get headlines to get you excited about uh, the, the big competition for Christmas. Who's going to get your money this holiday season? The next big story. Well, Microsoft's is, only play in consumer sector. Everything else they're doing corporate. So it's they have the whole brand, and, and it only exists to make sure that people remember that when kids, when you grow up, you want to buy Microsoft products. That's an important thing. So it's very important they have the good sentiment there. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised they haven't. I, I imagine at some point they'll come out with a VR adaption to Xbox. I mean, Xbox is such a huge platform. They've tried a few times with things. It's kind of... The, the reasons for Microsoft being in the space are very different from other groups. They Chris, put all they already people working glasses? on that space into the HoloLens group, and they just went all military in that sector. They really do not like being consumer sector at all. Xbox is their one foot in the, the the door there, and they do it for very strategic reasons. It's not there for money making. All they do make money. Well, there's Minecraft as well. That's oh, they did great, platform. but they use it as a research platform, and they use it as an education thing again because they're there for strategic reasons. It basically hooks them, it hooks the kids when they're young, and then says, "Hey, look, you can do Minecraft with this, Minecraft this." And look, Chris, hang on, didn't didn't they already do a version of? AR glasses or something like that for Xbox? Yeah, $22 billion. They made more money on it than anyone else in the sector for the, the military contract with the Pentagon. Um, that was, that was of, uh, three months ago, yeah. Four months ago, okay. yeah. It's all right. So they've already been trying on it. So, yeah. Microsoft HoloLens is really cool. And if you want to see some really cool video, look up something called Microsoft Mesh. Um, the videos on it are really shiny, and it's like their their vision of the future, where everyone does work from home in dark living rooms and sees holograms like Tony Hawk's, uh, Hawk, I'm sorry, not Tony Hawk, Tony Stark style uh, with you know Avengers holograms. <laughs> it's really cool. Okay, so the next big headline. Oh, we got Jay down here in the audience and Maria. Okay, so the next one is. The F, according to the Los Angeles Times, the LA Times, FBI says a man fished thousands of iCloud accounts, meaning meaning hacked, uh, and uh, via an email scam where he impersonated customer Apple customer support, meaning like, hey, your account's been compromised. Click here to change your password. Uh, stealing six hundred and twenty thousand photos and nine thousand videos until mid twenty eighteen. 
the LA County man broke into thousands of Apple iCloud accounts, collected more than 620,000 photos, more than half a million photos and videos, and in, in a plot to steal and share images of nude young women, federal authorities say, which, by the way, is highly illegal. So it's a bit dangerous to do so. Uh, how Kuo Chi, 40-year-old of La Puente, has agreed to plead guilty to four felonies, including conspiracy to gain unauthorized access to a computer court records show. Chi, who goes by David, admitted that he impersonated Apple customer support staff in emails that tricked unsuspecting victims into providing him with their Apple IDs and passwords. According to court records, he gained unauthorized access to photos and videos of at least 306 victims across the nation, most of them young women. He acknowledged in his plea agreement with federal prosecutors in Tampa, Florida. Chi said he hacked into the accounts of about 200 of the victims at the request of people he met online. Using the moniker iCloud Ripper for You, Chi marketed himself as capable of breaking into iCloud accounts to steal photos and videos he admitted in court papers. Chi acknowledged in court papers that he and his unnamed co-conspirators used a foreign encrypted email service to communicate with each other anonymously. When they came across nude photos and videos stored in the victims' iCloud accounts, they called them wins, which they collected and shared with one another. I don't even know who was involved, Chi said Thursday in a brief phone conversation. He expressed fear that public exposure of his crimes would ruin my whole life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think you knew that before you even started this, G. No shit, dickhead. <laughs> I'm remorseful for what I did, but I have family, he said. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> hey, the I'm sorry. Is why we're hearing about this now. Like, this happens on a semi-regular basis. It's yeah. interesting, the timing on this one, because this is something that, that, that there's one of these, like, every, like, you know, a week or two. Why are we hearing this on the international headline now? I'm I'm remorseful for what I did, but I have a family. <laughs> you should have thought that before starting that. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. This is precisely why you don't go to jail, because you have a family, right? So Chi's agreement to plead guilty comes as Apple is facing criticism from privacy advocates over its plan. I, ah, Chris, you nailed it. Why now is because uh, everyone's talking about iCloud and I, your photos in Apple and uh, child abuse imagery and porn scanning of your photos. And that's yeah, kind people of are starting to realize the reality of the, the Apple privacy story is just a marketing screen and that they've never really had your privacy interests at heart until they thought it could be a good marketing story. There's that. <laughs> you're, you're not the only one saying that. We've said that here on stage a few times, which is it'll be incredibly interesting to see Apple has their one of their second biggest annual event. They have, they essentially have two huge events each year. WWDC, which is usually around June, May, January, March, April, May. Yeah, May or June. And the WWDC is their annual week-long event where all of the Apple developers around the world kind of focus on. And then the other flagship event is early September, which is right around the corner, which is the iPhone launch event. General, that's what it's typically meant for they do other things at that event as Before well semiconductor shortages yes but the we do have this flagship annual event coming up either september 7th or 14th and the fact that we're getting so close is now leading me to think it'll probably be september 14th because we're getting uncomfortably close to september 7th but um 
at that event, they're going to announce the iPhone 13, as it's suspected to be called, which will have an always on screen, a, a, a significantly larger battery, a slightly better camera, a slightly better processor as usual. So the uh, at that event, that's the event where they go on and on and on about privacy, typically. Hey, hey, does this tie in with you say always on screen? How about the one of the cool things Apple does is they actually have, uh, I honestly, I actually do admire this, not, not cynically, but I do genuinely admire this. When you want to see the advanced functions, they tend to prototype within the accessibility features with things. So they basically they pitch them as, in that sector first because the accessibility people essentially want to have that for people with different disabilities or such. One of the functions they've been prototyping in the background, you can kind of see their future roadmap stuff, is the always on microphone that can identify essentially, you know, like, you know, uh, you know, dogs are barking or doors are being slammed or, you know, screaming or that kind of thing. And just a little thing about the thing saying, hey, I detected this. Now, that whole thing is pivoted on privacy aspect. Are they going to be announcing the always on microphone that can be there wherever you need to with the Siri? But but rather than just being Siri, it, you know, does other processing on device. I mean, if they're going to follow the same privacy things for the, the child, child stuff, what if it hears other crimes happening nearby? I mean, you want to make sure to basically have feels, you know, make sure that they're safe, right? <laughs> Yeah, we're we're in the midst. Snowden put out a video in the past twenty four hours, a very a rather long one, a thirty minute kind of soliloquy, as Dave calls them, um, all about this really sticky situation that we find ourselves in with regard to privacy and security. Uh, yeah, privacy versus security, essentially, and that he's he's really strongly urging everyone to not take the easy route and sacrifice our quote unquote freedoms for security. And um, so you can give that uh, a watch. Uh, uh, he's really making a strong plea to everybody to, uh, you know, take the uh, perhaps um, um, the road, the, the less obvious route, which he feels like long term, we're going to we're going to really paint ourselves into a difficult corner if we continue to take the sacrifice our liberties or, or privacy for more safety. Um, so anyways, you can we'll, we'll get a link to that and tweet that out. But uh, back to this L.A. Times story about our, our friend David G. Um Cheese conspirators would request that he back up certain iCloud account. Cheese Dropbox account contained more than 620,000 photos, 9,000 videos. And the scam started to unravel in March 2018. A California company that specializes in removing celebrity photos from the Internet notified an unnamed public figure in Tampa, Florida, that nude photos of the person had been posted on pornographic websites. So this is how it all un unfolded. You get a politician or something? No, no, no. Remember that huge celebrity leak, right? So yeah. then the, these private companies were created, right? And so now there's attention and engagement being paid to this underworld, and that's what uh, unraveled him. So investigators soon discovered that a login to the victim's iCloud account had come from an internet address at Chi's house in La Puente, Los Angeles. The FBI got a search warrant and raided the house on May 19th. By then, agents had already gathered a clear picture of G's online life from a vast trove of records they had obtained from Dropbox, Google, Apple, Facebook, and Charter Communications, which is his internet service provider. So, hey, they actually bought her with a warrant. I mean, that's better than Apple's doing. Yeah, but um, that just evidence that you know when when the authorities uh, wish to, they can you know subpoena all of your account information from all of the digital 
service providers like Dropbox, Google, Apple, Facebook, and your ISP. And with the combination of those things, yeah, they know pretty much everything they could ever wish to know uh, before they arrive at your house. So on August 5th, she agreed to plead guilty to one count of conspiracy and three counts of gaining unauthorized access to a protected computer. He faces up to five years in prison for each of the four crimes. If he's on a sex offender list, doesn't matter. It's punishment for life. I mean, that's it's, it's a thing. So that's the second biggest story of the day. And... The next one is uh, OnlyFans founder Tim Stokely blames banks, including BNY Mellon, uh, Metro Bank, JP Morgan, for its porn ban, but says MasterCard's rules had no bearing on the ban. And that's counter to um, much of the narrative that was going around and around why has OnlyFans started to ban porn. And uh, so now he's naming names. He's naming the actual banks, which was not what not what people assumed. So um, tweeting that one out for those who want to do the deep dive on that. Uh, that one's from Financial Times, but a lot of people are covering this, including The Verge and The New York Post and CNBC and uh, Variety, LA Times, Protocol and others. So sending that out for your convenience. And then the next big story is... A look at vac- a, a, something called the Vaccine Talk, capital V, capital T, a tightly moderated Facebook group for vaccine skeptics with 70,000 members that aims to change the mi- their minds with evidence-based info as social media giants uh, struggle to crack down on false claims about COVID, ordinary users are finding ways to reach vaccine skeptics and win them over. A tightly monitored of, of vaccine skeptics. Okay, so d- does anyone have any experience or knowledge of vaccine talk? Let's start there. Nobody. So let's read a bit of the article what, here. What? What? What do you mean? What is the question, Tyler? The Washington Post has a headline about a Facebook group called Vaccine Talk which is a tightly moderated group, which means you have to apply and the moderators approve you to join the group, of vaccine skeptics, 70,000 members. Their aim is to change their minds with evidence-based info. A social media, uh, and then the sub-headline says, as social media giants like Facebook struggle to crack down on false claims about COVID, ordinary users are finding ways to reach vaccine skeptics and win them over. That's the sub-headline. Michelle is in the audience. Okay. Ah, yes, that would be fantastic. Michelle, if Michelle could give us any additional little interesting preview into, um, but we do have uh, an element of this in Clubhouse, do we not? Which is vaccines. In fact, uh, who was Dr. Heidi? And you know, we had the MedTech room yesterday where this was a bit of a, uh, a conversation and Dr. Heidi in the audience made some great points. I and John uh, and Ellen uh, have spent significant hours in those rooms listening. And it's really interesting to hear those conversations at times, very frustrating. Um, I enjoy watching the rooms from a data perspective. I watch the analytics of how many people are going in and out of the rooms and kind of the chart of how they grow and decline. And, um, and then usually around two hours into the room, the, the, one of the moderators says, 
oh, we've been shadow banned because now we're not available, visible in the hallway. I have a friend trying to find the room and they can't find the room and it's no longer in the hallway. And that's correct. The room is no longer in the hallway <laughs> because the admins at Clubhouse have you know, removed it from the hallway. Oops. And it can the... also be the block function being overpowered because essentially if you block someone on the stage or they block you with things, it has like this. It's, yes. it's way overpowered. You're right. It could be that the person who's trying to join the room has been blocked. However, I can't find the room in the hallway either. And, um, and I haven't uh, Everyone loves you, Tyler. Yeah. But um, it's... And I can see on the data, on the chart, where the room's going, trending up, trending up. Oh, you can see the entire room thing. Oh, yeah. I see all the data. The room gets right up to around 800 people, and then boom, it starts <laughs> sliding downward. There's a dramatic 90-degree angle in the chart. And um, once Talking the... about the zombie juice room? No. I'm talking about rooms of just uh, vaccine-hesitant people wanting to discuss. Sounds like Clubhouse is in moderation here. Yeah, no, I'm I I don't I don't mind this, and there the rooms are an interesting makeup no, of pe people who want to. There's, um, there's one regularly comes on called then they're calling the vaccines zombie juice, and then it disappears mm. all of a sudden. Mm. And, and, they they have different degrees of skepticism. Some of them are have healthy skepticism. Some of them are rather toxic skepticism, um, and. Um, it is what it is, but um, uh, Minaz, or, or um, who, who was I just referring to? The, uh, Dr. Heidi was making the point that maybe as difficult as it might be for people like herself and John, who's you know a real uh, brilliant mind in this space, to actually engage where our, our common sense tells us not to, to fight the good fight and try and be as helpful and, and, and provide as much uh, context as possible to people who are apprehensive and kind of point them to proper data sources in a polite way just to kind of seize the opportunity. Um, because there's a lot of folks who are uh, getting a lot of misinformation and sharing a lot of misinformation. And that's kind of the unfortunate aspect of it. But it is sort of an opportunity to try and engage with folks and, and share um, other perspectives that they might not generally hear from. So anyway, um, interesting. Hey, um, Tyler, yes. Johan and Carl is in okay, the room. Okay, thank you. And then Michelle joined, and welcome back, um, Saudamini. And, and, and Tyler, on that, you know, on this subject, yeah, it's just very challenging because those that actually get sick are now opting for, um, you know, alternative, not alternative treatments, but approved treatments that are more intensive and more rigorous. It's like, if you get the Regeneron monoclonal antibody, that's four shots. And you're already in living in hell by the time you show up at the hospital. You know, like, it could have been saved by like a, yeah. a 15 minute procedure. And it's not to lecture, but it's just really sad, you know, and then if they're really paranoid about getting a pharmaceutical I, does anybody really know what a monoclonal antibody is i mean I, I i know what they are because my wife works around them all the time but does anybody really know what a monoclonal antibody is out we, there and we and, should be having like just it's one thing just to say into the future with things not even for this pandemic but the future ones with things we should really have much more public education about biology just in general like yeah I'm thinking almost like 
I, I, like there's this thing on the Jimmy Kimmel show where they they have this thing where they literally just have and I, I've seen them do this with things and, and like so they, there's only so much filtering here where they say they show us like here's a map can you find the United States can yeah. you name a country and just yeah. a country on the map and yeah. it's like just the lack of knowledge for geography is one thing but when we get to the point where it's like life or death issues like this it's like we need to have more public education about that and maybe we start need to have like man on the street style level stuff this is a great point. point Chris that's that's absolutely brilliant by the way um, and what Chris is referring to is a, one of America's popular comedy evening shows, and Jimmy Kimmel's the host, and they go right out in front of the studio on Sunset Boulevard, or Hollywood Boulevard, rather, and um, right in front of the theater, and they ask people walking by, because that's where the Hollywood Walk of Fame is, where the stars are in the sidewalk, so it's a real touristy area, and they ask people walking down the street, who are from all over America because they're tourists. It's a Hollywood. pretty good sampling, honestly. It's a great sampling of America. And um, and they say they show a map of the world, and they say, can you find India? And, of course, nobody can. And then they say, can you find any country? I, believe it or not, as crazy as this sounds, there's people who can't find... There are Americans who can't find America on a map of the world. It's and pretty bad. How come? How come? How How come? Because the education is quite bad. So because the consumer's been designed to only make A B decisions. Right. Um, and it's by design. know how to give like some of the world's best education. There was some weird collective decision making that decided to degrade the system intentionally. We can fix that if we want to, but the thing is when you have people ask questions like that. It, it means that they're more politically involved civically, which can make things complicated there. It means they actually might start basically not making different business decisions than basically the ones that are presented to them. They might start making housing arrangements. They start making uh, involved with essentially local governance. It, that's something that was decided to not be as friendly. So there was an intentional decision made about 30 years ago to stop really pushing in like the best education that we know how to do. And so I really think that should be opposed and we should be like actually doing actual education. Um, the, just uh, uh, 20 seconds. The uh, main system thing is that our school system was designed to train the ultimate factory workers of the future. And then we moved all of our factories overseas to China and to other countries. Uh, and so we have these giant rust belts for where the, the schools used to be, but we never changed the education system to be more modern from that. So there's this weird legacy stuff. It's it, 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 That's a longer topic. But yeah, the education system is quite poor. And we're seeing the outcomes of that with like the COVID and the vaccine hesitancy. It's a residual knock on effect of 10, 20, 30 years of essentially neglecting that. Isn't yeah, much. Why, we yeah, don't see yeah, geography that's, anymore, I'm, period. That's it. We don't teach geography anymore. Yeah, that's why I'm kind of like a skeptical about them having quote unquote evidence. I'm pretty sure that they're just gathering that information and an evidence based on radicalized political conspiracy theories. Yeah. There was a uh, brilliant video I saw yesterday on TikTok. And you know how on TikTok, you can take somebody's existing TikTok video and then respond to it and then repost that as your video or, and, where you, and then they can chain on top of each other. So one person who's a, a skeptic was making, made a viral video pleading their case or here's everything you need to know about all of the negatives of the vaccines. And then a, 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 geneticist or sorry an epidemiologist made a response video right on top where they're literally speaking uh, directly in response so the the skeptic says you know here's everything you need to know the mrna is a messenger rna and the doc, the epidemiologist says yes that's correct 
and then says, and then it comes in and edits your DNA. And she says, no, 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 that's not correct. And then it's, it has, it's encased in a lipid and the doctors don't know how long this will take for the lipid to develop. No, no, it takes two weeks. We know how long it takes. And then it goes up in your brain. No, it doesn't go up in your brain. It's like this instant, super fast response in real time to everything that this person is saying in their video. And that's now going viral as well. And that, that's an interesting uh, way to do it as well. But I, I like your idea, Chris, of somehow doing public viral videos of really just simple explanations with a with a whiteboard or with a... I'm like man on the street. Yes. Like you need to understand it's like 10, 20 seconds of like, can you find this on a map of like, do you know what this thing is? It is DNA right. or it's RNA. It looks like this. By the way, here's a sample of it right now with things. If you want to basically learn some more, but just the basic stuff because i think without that it's very difficult to it's just acronyms and what you heard someone's mother's aunt say when you can actually go and say i know what that thing is it can give that confidence to actually build into the next level where you can actually start having some actual understanding passing on well there's also and here's the question go ahead so here's the question do you think that if they get treated with the mabs it's actually going to empower their anti-vax sentiment Maybe in the short term with things, I'm kind of, look, this is kind of sound kind of weird. I'm almost viewing this as kind of lost cause for the short term. And so this is kind of sad. I'm looking at the next one that comes like, you know, 5, 10, 20 years from now when this is more the, the common bio warfare tactic that every country uses in the world as opening engagement. We would be really good if we had better defenses about that. If we start now, we can possibly have a better defense for the next time. Somebody had a, an, a really interesting take of... Actually, what we need to do is rename the vaccine like hydrococcalica, you know, some crazy name and say uh, and start branding, creating a, a separate YouTube uh, or, or Facebook group, the, an anti-vaxxer group called this is the the real, you know, treatment that the co- government co- really co- doesn't co- want co- you to co- know. Co- about. Huh? <laughs> no, co- no, no, no. Or whatever they call the, the Pfizer. Um, no, na- name the vaccine Ivermectix. Yeah, something, you know, really in- give it the strange name, claim that it's the real solution that the government doesn't want you to know about. The, the media, That's all we need is a media. real false flag, right? Then then the conspiracy theorists will, will actually have... <laughs> That's the problem. And, 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 and so the media is complicit in this too. If you read the articles that talk about MABs, they tell you, oh, well, this shot is it, it, it teaches the body um, how to mimic a mutant. It mimics the uh, response that your body has to a normal infection. It mimics the natural response. And I'm sitting here slapping my hand against my head because that's exactly that's what, what the vaccine, vaccine is trying to accomplish. Yeah. And so the media is complicit in this, too. OK, a public so, education. Let's start the journalist. OK, so this is this. Is this a, oh, sorry. Go, on, tell him if go I'm ahead, sorry. Carl. I was just going to say, is this conversation not indicative of part of the problem of dealing with the issue as well? Because we started off talking about that it's an educational problem, which obviously it is an educational problem um, in in the fact that, you know, people in the US and, and many developed countries are coming out without the tools they need to understand the world and how complex it is. So then they turn to simplistic forms, but then it turned to conspiracies. And conspiracy theorists and that kind of thing has got nothing to do so much with education because a lot of these people, and I've spent time talking to these people personally um, over in the UK, um, they they are educated. They're incredibly intelligent. I've worked with exceptionally um, talented software engineers who are also conspiracy theorists. Very, very, very intelligent people. Not a problem of education. 
it's a problem with political views and ideological views and wanting to find the secret of the world and how the government is controlling you. So that's so even while we're talking about it now, we are we're broadly jumping over many different topics and all of them result in the same thing, which is people don't want to get vaccinated. But the actual root causes are not just one thing. It's not just education. It's it's political views. It's ideology. It's us versus them. It's it's bigotry. And all of these things sort of come together and end up with a populace that doesn't want to get vaccinated when it should, but for different reasons. So, you know, I, I just wanted to point out that even we, as we were talking about it, couldn't pin it down to one problem, as it were. Yeah. And that's why it makes it so well, tough to deal with this situation. It's a com- I, I think to boil it down, it's a combination of now uh, mistrust in systems and which isn't totally misplaced, <laughs> but yeah, but uh, and then exacerbated by uh, um, the education factor or critical thinking and whatnot. So, very briefly, uh, and I know we don't want to move on to the plot, uh, the point, but it, it just I've studied a lot of different fields, like of all sorts of random things. Microbiology. We've, no- we've noticed, Chris. Well, okay, I'm just saying this. Microbiology is one of my absolute favorites, but it's also among the most complex that I know of with things. And I'd say that it's something that is one of the hardest things for uh, that, that it was one of the most difficult for one as to approach. And I'm saying this just as a, to be fair to people going, how do you not know what this is? Or how do you not know what that is with things? It, it was hard even before the pandemic, before we had active bad faith actors uh, polluting our databases and our discourse and everything else before it got intentionally confusing. So we need to get a better like groundwork even to get to the next stage on, on that, that, that complexity. And if we have people that we can actually trust moving forward, that's going to make it a lot easier to do. And just if it's, if exactly it's, it's, it's on the street, that's a good start. It's, it's the only one that's tied religiously as well. Like nobody's arguing that physics has has religious ties and whatnot, and, or anything like that, really. Unless you, in this you know, area, like right? space, but 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 yeah, exactly, yeah. But in this area, biology still has those deep, deep ties to arguments about you know religion and, and that kind of thing. So that's an additional complexity that none of the other sort Ooh, of technological cool advances. Room. Let's do that one later. I, I actually would like to host yeah. one. On. That could be cool. Okay. Yeah, man. Next one is. Testing of carriers across the United States shows that T-Mobile with a commanding lead in 5G winning speed tests in 24 cities and rural regions to AT&T's 8 and Verizon's 2. And the next big headlines from the New York Times and others, TikTok partners with Shopify. Where's my cash register? Uh, to launch a pilot program letting merchants add a shopping tab to their profiles and link to products in their posts. TikTok and Shopify, the e-commerce platform, said on Tuesday that they were working together to add the ability for consumers to shop directly in the TikTok app for the first time. Amazing. This is wild. Why didn't anybody tell me about this? Will USA let them have the financial data with ByteDance changing up the board of directors recently with state-based actors? Yeah, we. that was a headline three days ago that uh, the... China, the, the Chinese government has taken a, one of the three board seats uh, in TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, which is basically TikTok. And um, which raises the question how, you know, uh, and all, even since then, when that headline came out about actually three or four days ago, even since then, in the past 48 hours, there's now a senator calling for a reinvestigation into whether we should uh, now shut down TikTok do do precisely this the the, the Chinese influence in um, in TikTok. I mean, they're going to let them have the financial data if they're not comfortable with them having the biometrics. I mean, it's kind of one of those like there's a lot of data well, that was back and forth that was there. that was a, a similar issue, and that was being led by or co-chaired by Amy Klobuchar, which was 
TikTok, separate issue, actually, about two months ago, TikTok updated their privacy policies that every user uh, must agree to to use the app. And in this new privacy policy, which nobody reads, by the way, but uh, but clicks I agree to, is the ability to take what they call a voice print and a face print of you, the user of the app. And of course, Amy Klobuchar in the letter to TikTok says, what the fuck is a face print and a voice print? I may have added the F word in that sentence, but the rest of it was actually the the whole purpose of the letter, which was where's the data being stored? How long is it going to be stored for? Do you, are you also including minors in your data collection? Because it doesn't say in your privacy policy. And do you even know if someone's a minor who's using your app? And where's the data stored? How long is it stored? What's a voice print? What's a face print? It, can that data be used for advertising on and on and on and on? Because they're they're not being clear at all about it, and they're intentionally so. So uh, we look forward to TikTok's response to that. And What if there are multiple people in the video and passes by in the background? Yeah. Well, uh, we know what happens in China when that happens. <laughs> so, um, so the next... But back to this story, TikTok is partnering with Shopify, uh, which I've been ranting about for months now. But as everyone here knows, and that's why I've invested very heavily in Shopify, um, and um, it's Shopify's ki- killing it. This whole social commerce thing is has tremendous opportunity and upside, which we will now start to see as soon as all of this starts becoming live and you start seeing a whole amazing industry flourish overnight, which is on the brink of happening, where you'll start seeing people become professional sellers. And these become alternatives to Amazon is what's going to happen. This is what happened in Asia. So and here in Thailand, where the platforms used to be you know, people taking photos of their cats and their food and all of that, that will transition into now that you can start selling stuff on these platforms, these platforms very quickly become um, thousands of people live streaming and uh, selling all kinds of interesting stuff. And you'll start buying that stuff. You're going to find these people are incredibly talented at convincing people to buy the crazy stuff they are selling. So I seem to recall this like very aged toy maker collector guy, and he'd just basically he'd go, "I found this most wonderful, delightful thing from this random place, and you can buy one of twelve of them here in my store." I can just imagine essentially like yeah, it's not going to be just the QVC channel; it's we're going to have some really esoteric personalities in this sort of thing. Yeah, I'm, my point is this has far bigger implications than people assume on, on the face of the headline. You read the headline that TikTok partners with Shopify to launch, you know, a shopping tab on and and you know influencers can now sell products on the profiles and you're thinking oh okay it's going to be the same as before except that you know the people i follow are now once in a while going to be selling something no that's not that that's going to happen but something much much bigger and more important is going to happen which is you're going to start seeing whole new influencers you never noticed before doing 24-hour live stream telethons with live acts and animals and it's like a goddamn circus you know it's like a dr seuss circus uh you know on on meth amphetamines and they're selling products all the time and it's super super compelling and you're going to find yourself clicking the buy button even against your better judgment (laughs) and and you're even gonna they're so entertaining you're going to be sending them to your friends and saying you have to see this this is truly insane and they're you're going to spend 
it's going to become an alternative to the shows that you watch on Netflix. You're going to be like, hmm, hey, honey, should we watch another series on Netflix? Or should we watch these crazy people on TikTok doing their live stream selling? Let's watch the TikTok sellers. That's what's coming. And that's why the... Huh? I've got a weird variation on this. So Zuckerberg basically partnered, uh, one of his VPs or whatever, partnered with Hillsong and and uh, and, and Facebook for say, you know, you know, streaming uh, church services and stuff on that. Yeah. Can can we Shopify the church service experience for this? Like, yeah. uh, that's oh, good. by I the way, really weird. We had a headline 24 hours ago that we, the kudos to Rengent, uh found a job listing on Shopify is now hiring for an e-commerce platform uh, developer. Product manager to build Shopify. I'm sorry, Spotify's e-commerce platform. And we read the job description. Spotify is building a e-commerce platform inside of Spotify. Again, as predicted by yours truly multiple times over the past several months. So here it comes. It's uh, now on our uh, the the tsunami is now over the horizon. It's now within view. And it will soon um, reach our shores. So the next big headline is from Axios. California expands lawsuit against Activision Blizzard. Oh, boy. Back to this old drama. More PR. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, To include temp workers and says the game maker interfered with investigation by shredding pertinent documents. Uh Uh-oh. California has expanded its anti-discrimination lawsuit against Activision Blizzard. Adding temporary workers to, let's read this here. California's expanded the anti-discrimination lawsuit against Activision Blizzard, adding temporary workers to the female full-time employees of whom it is suing on behalf. The state's Department of Fair Employment and Housing also alleges the game maker has interfered with its investigation. While Activision Blizzard has attempted to show over the past month that it is addressing issues raised by the suit, um, the California uh, is turning up the heat. An Activision Blizzard representative has not yet replied to Axios's request for, for comment. Well, they're in a lawsuit, so they probably won't comment. Between the lines, the amended complaint was filed Monday and redefines the group it says was wronged by the gaming giant, adding in the temp workers in addition to the full-time employees, basically. And also says Activision Blizzard has stymied its efforts through NDAs, requiring employees to speak with the company ahead of contacting. Ah, so they're they're forcing everyone to into private meetings. Is that and, legal? And signing NDAs. I don't. I imagine it I mean, is. NDAs did not talk to the government doing an investigation against you. It might be. It might be. I'm no doubt they asked their lawyers that question before they did that. Clearly, this was their own internal lawyers who suggested to do this. These are the same lawyers that got them sued in the first place. Just, just saying that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's common practice to use NDAs, right? In the industry. Right. They, they're, they're, maybe they know that it won't be actually enforceable, but they think intimidate people for long enough for them to bury a few bodies out back, you know. <laughs> so the suit claims that this directly interferes with their ability to investigate, prosecute and remedy workplace discrimination and harassment violations on behalf of employees and contingent or temporary workers. It alleges in part that documents related to investigations and complaints were shredded by human resource personnel in violation of what it asserts is the game company's legal obligation to retain them pending the investigation. The change comes after stories revealed toxic conditions faced by Activision Blizzard contract workers. Stories shared with Axios 
from the ABK Workers Alliance. That's a, that's a union. So I told you the unionization is uh, going to be a factor in this, specifically from stories shared with Axios from the Workers Alliance, specifically from the Quality Assurance and Customer Service Departments, paint a picture of brutal overtime paired with little pay. So For people that are less familiar with video game industry, QA is the most painful thing of it all. Imagine constant crunch time, but unlike the developers, you get to decide, you know, they can adjust the, the launch windows. Maybe they can basically adjust, you know, what, the, what, what, what kind of features are really not. No, QA, you have to basically play the game over and over and over again. 20-hour crunches, it is brutal, and it pays the least of all of them. So it's it's if it's going to be toxic emergency for so somewhere. Check this it's out. Probably going to be from that one. Well, let, look at look look at this though. This is quite interesting. It says, as a contract employee, I feel there's a lot of pressure to excel, impress, and move through the ranks as fast as you can before your contract ends and you're forced to go three months without income or find another job. I take pride in what I do, but I feel it's never enough. We suffer from stress. Another worker said, we suffer physical ailments. We are overworked and underpaid across the board. Now. That info was provided by the Workers Alliance, who's kind of a, a union, obviously, Workers Alliance, ABK Workers Alliance, specifically sent this to Axios and probably also sent it to the California DFEH, who's you know behind this suit. The suit was originally about sexual discrimination and sexual harassment, but... They've now extended the scope of the suit to include contract employees because these contract employees, upon uh, clearly the investigators, started speaking to these contract employees and found out these contract employees feel exactly as we just read how they feel. Those were quotes from them, that they're overworked, underpaid, suffer physical ailments, suffering from stress. Ah, okay, let's update the lawsuit to include these contract employees who are overworked, suffering from stress, physical ailments. That ha- which What does that have to do with the sexual harassment, sexual discrimination that the suit was originally based on? You can unionize around it. Right. Then this was my point. Is I said, do, do you remember uh, when this all started unfolding two, three weeks ago? I said, ah, these uh, this signature collection that they made kind of was a change of course because it was originally uh, you know the the female employees filed the suit about sexual harassment sexual discrimination they signed they got 2500 signatures or well, actually no let's go in order the suit was announced the company said this is unfair we don't we don't really believe in this characterization the Com- uh, the employees did a signature collection saying, we don't agree with your assessment that this is unfair. And there was 2,500 who signed up for that, who are clearly not all women. There's a whole lot of men who signed up on, on that signature collection of 2,500. And we know this because they organized a walkout the, the days later in front of the office. And when you look at the photo of the people who did the walkout, it's largely men. So, but they—it's international. Does they have jurisdiction here's, here? Here's my point: is the 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 people, the 2,500 employees, which is about 25 percent of the company, who signed the letter saying we don't agree with the boss's uh, statements that this is you know unfair characterization. Uh, the protesters and the signatures are clearly a, a whole lot of men, and they're now. Uh, and I said, oh, boy, watch out. This is how unions start at a company. So 
And indeed, now we see that the investigation is now expanding its scope to talk to not the original female employees who are claiming sexual discrimination and harassment. It's the contract employees who are saying they're overworked and overstressed and suffering physical ailments. And that's who they now want to add to the scope of the people who were being hurt by the company. And, oh, by the way, this is all being now fed by this ABK Workers Alliance. So the whole the whole tonality of this lawsuit has shifted from female team member employees for sexual harassment and discrimination to uh, the uh, a, a, a significant size of uh, contract employees who feel they're overworked and overstressed and being treated unfairly, and the, the union is behind this. And now the the lawsuit has taken on a whole new dimension. At a minimum, it's a pressure tactic designed to get them to the table, and it, it, this might work, right? Uh, it, and it's overdue, but uh, it, it's starting to lump lots of different things together. I'm curious if it might... Uh, yeah, let's see how... Well, no doubt we'll, we'll see how this will... This to be continued, but it's a really interesting development. I think... I think as automation increases, like, you know, I've mentioned it before, I think the Teamsters and other things, you're seeing them pop up in uh, the ride-sharing apps kind of being the hero in the 1099 versus, you know, Uber and stuff. I think I think the Teamsters are looking for, you know, membership. But now here's an interesting point. Because these... Somebody has a hot mic. It's a, yeah. So, uh, thank you, Cheryl. Uh, look like Michelle or I So the, no doubt... Uh, people were investigating and asking around to Activision Blizzard uh, contract employees like the Q&A testers. Hey, have you suffered sexual abuse or discrimination? And they responded back, uh, no, but I'm stressed and I work really hard. Uh, maybe we can talk about that. And <laughs> and now it's like, ah, oh, OK, sure. Yeah, let's let's include this in the lawsuit, too. Um, but by the way, now we need to expand even who the kind of um, the the plaintiffs in the case are no longer just the limited female employees. It's now all of the Q&A testers and everybody who um, are expressing that they feel overworked. And it's just it's a, it's a new lawsuit, essentially. Uh, so interesting. We will continue to follow how that unravels. Somebody. So wanted... they made you work. Can you explain how they uh made you do this thing called work um, <laughs> yeah. no, no. Well, well so there's work the thing is when they get you essentially it's after you essentially you've lost your family and friends and after that you know the few months in and with things and all the social support goes away and then you know, there's nothing in life anymore it's and there's the zombies that it's, it's at that point that essentially people start to have a little bit of an issue but it's not that's not the thing they normally sign up for but I, I've, I've i've lost people near me that have gone to work in the video game industry and i don't talk to them very much anymore it's very sad it's yeah they do all the time the q a testers do Play, they play games day and night like endlessly they don't play games they yeah, yeah. basically they basically break them over yeah. and over and over yeah. again uh, okay so the next one is from usa today from jessica guyan who's been doing the tech uh, journalism for more than a minute and uh she it says researchers uh trump tweets with fact check labels spread further on Twitter than those without. Messages blocked by Twitter remain popular on Facebook and Reddit. Twitter blocked and labeled some of Donald Trump's claims of election fraud in the run-up 
and aftermath of the 2020 presidential election. And the tweets spread on Twitter anyway. That's according to a new study from NYU, New York University researchers published today in Harvard Kennedy School of Misinformation Review and shared exclusively with USA Today. The study is raising questions about the ability of social media companies to halt the flood of falsehoods in, on mainstream social media platforms during election cycles. NYU researchers say Trump's tweets with fact-check labels spread further on Twitter than those without. And when Twitter blocked engagement with the former president's tweets, they leaped to Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit, where they were more popular than tweets that Twitter labeled or did not flag at all. So it's having the opposite of the intended effect, essentially. So Twitter's uh, aims to kind of curtail Trump's influence actually exacerbate um, his influence. Long story short. There you go. Okay, so and it's from the, um, yeah, it's a Harvard or uh, sorry NYU uh, study. So the next it, are, is the demographic different. That that seems important to me. Is in the demographic that it's shared to is that different? Hmm, it doesn't say. I, I imagine the full study does, but you'll have to go to, go to the Twitter account account and and see. Click the link to the study to dive on that one. The next one is from Wired. It says, Cerebras Systems claims its hardware can now run a neural network with 120 trillion parameters targeting a nascent market for massive uh, natural language processing AI algorithms. And this Cerebras um, has come up with an interesting approach to processors used in doing AI. Um, where it creates they, this... they figured out how to make a really cheap one and they figured out how to use the entire wafer and then cool that fracker down. This is actually, there's a mesoscale, uh, a mesoscale wafer engineering was actually something they tried back in the nineties and it bankrupted a number of investors. They, they put like 300 million into it and just poof, it went away with things. And there's a few other groups that tried and they didn't, they, they, they said, ah, it's too hard. We're not going to touch it. You basically, if you heat up one part of the chip more than another part, the, the, the wafer is so thin, it'll just shatter. So a, a huge amount of consumer electronic design, especially in high-end chips these days, has almost nothing to do with computation. It's all about thermal management. If you can solve thermals, you can basically make everything else magical. So Cerebus, one of the brilliant things they did is they said, we're going to basically make it a very, very simple chip and circuit. We're going to copy and paste it across the entire wafer, and they put all of their engineering into making sure all the support infrastructure means that the thing doesn't die when it's basically doing its stuff. So it's it's very exciting for the long-term future. It says in the article here, Cerberus says that technology can run a neural network with 120 trillion connections, 100 times what's achievable today. And the first paragraph reads, when it comes to the neural networks that power today's AI, sometimes the bigger they are, the smarter they are. Two recent leaps in machine understanding of language, for example, have hinged on building some of the most enormous AI models ever and stuffing them with a huge gobs of text. A new cluster of computer chips could now help these networks grow to almost unimaginable size and show whether going ever larger may unlock further AI advances, not only in language understanding, but perhaps also in areas like robotics and computer vision. Good times. So the next, I know they they have a they have a very competent response business development team, and they are interested in crypto. If people essentially want to do interesting things, they, their biz dev team is very responsive. Just just throwing it out there. Yeah, and 
Okay, so the next one is also, oh no, we covered the, hang on, study details of people using hashtag. That was from Wired. Jessica Gwynn got two in the top 10 today. Wow, good for her. Um, So again, from Jessica from USA Today, study details how people use hashtags, video effects, and music on TikTok to promote hate against Asians, women, Muslims, Jews, and Blacks, and LGBTQ people. Despite pledges to crack down on hatred, TikTok is still trafficking in short-form videos that promote white supremacy and anti-black racism, according to USA Today, or, well, according to a study uh, that USA Today is, that's their headline. Of the 1,030 TikTok videos, researchers analyzed nearly a third amplified white supremacy. TikTok videos spewed hate about Asians, LGBTQ migrants and refugees, women, Muslims, and Jews. Researchers warned exposure to extremism is dangerous because of TikTok's reach with kids and teens. Extremists use TikTok's features like video effects, video grid layout, and music to promote hate. Despite pledges to crack down on hatred, TikTok is still trafficking in short-term videos to promote white supremacy and anti-black racism, according to a new study from the London-based Institute for Strategic Dialogue. The counterterrorism think tank says it's study is the largest to examine hate on TikTok and raises new questions about how effective the platform is at policing it. Of the 1,030 videos researchers analyzed over three months in 2020, uh, 312, nearly a third, amplify white supremacy. The clips included support for genocide conspiracy theories that claim white people's existence is under threat and music from white power bands. Three of the top Three of the 10 most popular videos viewed a combination of 3.5 million times were clips originally produced by Paul Miller, an extremist known as Gypsy Crusader who spreads racism and anti-Semitic rhetoric on social media. Miller, who was arrested earlier this year on charges of being a felon in possession of a firearm, can be seen in another video telling a black person they're as black as the ace of spades. It was viewed 354,000 times before it was taken down. By and large, the majority of content in our sample did not achieve such views like this, but there was still a significant cluster that did, and this raises questions over how TikTok algorithm promotes explicitly hateful content to users on the platform. Strategic Dialogue Institute analysis Kiaran O'Connor told USA Today. The white British supra- counterterrorism is nervous about China's soft power ability to promote dissent overseas. Correct. Yeah, this this is precisely what's going on. Um, so, and by the way, there's a related headline from last week that the CCP now wants control of TikTok's algorithm to control what people see in China on TikTok. And they specifically said they want to see less harmful content and more good content. You guys remember this headline from last week? So I I like the party. That's good content, right? (laughs) So um, they specifically say they want less celebrity gossip, less uh, vulgar dancing, a.k.a. twerking and um, more Marxist literary criticism. Their own words. This is is like no porn on OnlyFans. I mean, what else? If you don't have dancing on TikTok, what are you going to do? Well, the the interesting that the party says we need to have uh, influence on the algorithm uh, in China. And then, of course, that l- leads to the question of um, do the I mean, 
Facebook's head of uh, cybersecurity says China is intentionally trying to cause, um, you know, uh, misinformation campaigns on Facebook. China and Russia have both been named, but disproportionately, those, those two above all else are the you know the state actors who are causing a, a large proportion of the misinformation around you know all, all kinds of things and um, antagonism, weaponizing social media to cause division in America. So would it not make sense then if the if the CCP has a seat at the table and is now on the one of the three board seats of TikTok? And also wants access to the algorithm to minimize the negative effects of social media in China. That they also might also weaponize TikTok in America. You know, in the 1960s, there were about nuclear warfare with bombers coming over Alaska, you know, nuke us all to hell with things. Now they're basically saying, what happens if the Chinese basically are secretly conspiring to basically infiltrate us with dance videos? I mean, this is essentially like we live in a very strange world these days. So the um, another used racist terminology such as jogger exterminator a reference to killing 25 year old Ahmed Aubrey who was chaser da, da, da. another video covered black lives matters closed fist symbol with a white hand in a sig hail a nazi victory salute not only are communities minorities or groups of people like Amer african americans being targeted those who target them are also being praised shared and glorified on the platform o'connor said are kids, teens exposed to extremism on TikTok? That, he says, can be dangerous, particularly with TikTok's wide range among young people. O'Connor says he regularly spotted watermarked links to white supremacist Telegram channels in the comments. In the comments, users would ask or advise others how to find extremist manifestos or additional materials to think that young people are not only viewing such content that is hateful of communities of supportive of extremists, but also actively creating this content too is especially concerning. TikTok says it does not permit threats and incitements to violence, dangerous individuals or organizations, attacks or slurs based on protected characteristics or hateful dialogues or ideologies. And it says it removes any content that violates its rules, including videos, audio, live stream images, comments, or text. Here's the quote. TikTok categorically prohibits violent extremism and hateful behavior and are dedicated team will remove any such content as it violates our policies and undermines the creative and joyful experience people expect from our platform. The company said in a statement, we greatly value our collaboration with ISD and others who, whose critical research on industry-wide challenges help strengthen how we enforce our policies to keep our platform safe and welcoming. It said in last year that it has a zero tolerance for organized hate groups and those associated with them. So the Institute for Strategic Dialogue says TikTok removes hateful and extremist content, but not consistently. Some 191 videos, 18.5% of those videos they analyzed were removed or were no longer available on TikTok by the end of the data collection period. So they removed 18.5% uh, of the ones that were flagged, basically. Uh, so we'll see. To be continued, is TikTok intentionally fanning hatred flames is the quick summary of that. It'd almost be like, you know, if like, you know, certain sections of companies like Reddit would got purchased by essentially by large Chinese overseas groups, essentially right in the middle of a tech crackdown. I wonder if, they, well, if they've been posting uh, dissentious content recently. I mean, it... It's yes, you raise a very interesting question in, in uh, Reddit did receive uh, does have a, a notable Chinese investor. Um, and even Twitter, even Reddit users uh, bring up that point 
from time to time in in Reddit um, threads. All the time. Yeah, all the time. So um, Spotify says all U.S.-based podcasters using Anchor can sell subscriptions to episodes available on RSS and Spotify expanding internationally later. Plus, new price tiers and email addresses. Spotify is broadcasting the number of people or broadening. Spotify is broadening the number of people who can offer subscription podcasts. Or another way to say that is more people can start charging money for their podcasts and have their shows play on its service. And basically, anybody can anchor, which is a company they acquired, is truly fantastic. It's uh, normally, if you want to have a podcast, it's actually not so simple to set up the enclosures and the RSS. And um, uh, Anchor comes along and made that magically simple and automates it for you. So you just give them your logo, the name of your podcast, tell it which platforms you want to be on. If you want to be on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, uh, they do a whole lot of uh, automatic distribution for you. They create your podcast channel on all of the main Google podcasts as well. And then you only need to upload your content in one place. They help you edit it. They help you add music to it. And then once it's blasted out to all of the podcasting portals, it gives you analytics of how it's doing globally, of what countries are listening to it, which age groups, which genders, which and all of the analytics that you would want about um, which of your podcasts has the most views? Everything. It's beautiful. And and it also, uh, Spotify's mother app itself has podcasts. And so it uh, that counts as well. And so anyways, now you're going to be able to charge for your podcast if you so want to charge a subscription. Spotify is broadening the number of people who can offer subscription podcasts and have their shows played on its service. Today, the company announced... Uh, along with expanded rollout, Spotify says it's also adding more pricing options. Um, now 20 different options, up from three, and is giving podcasters the ability to download their paying subscribers' email addresses. Oh, snap. That's crazy. That's unprecedented. Because normally, when you participate in a platform like YouTube, you do not get your viewers' email addresses. That's gnarly. <laughs> it is. This is and, called, and that wow. they can they can do they can take over uh, Mailchimp and all those other services too. Well, this is about owning your customer in the in the upcoming what do we call this uh, creator economy? There was a brilliant blog post written two weeks ago about how the creator economy is likely to follow the gig economy in that it was very promising. People got excited and then realized, ah, shit, I don't own any of this data. I don't own this audience. And in the gig economy, yes, you can be an Uber driver. You can be a Lyft driver, a, a, a Instacart delivery person, and all of these things simultaneously. However, you don't own that customer that you're driving around. Next time they driver. want a ride, they're not, not the con- Yes. 
what the br- most brilliant Uber drivers that I met with things is what they would do is they'd have a black book with them with things. And they say, if you like my service, here's the card with things. I can get you a better rate if you take this route on a regular basis. And they basically build right. up a list right. of like 100, 200 right. things. And then they would leave the Uber platform and right. they'd have basically permanent customers. Right. Those were the smart ones. And they Correct. left that service after about a few months when they Correct. learned how to do that trick. That's called owning your, that's called building a business. And you can't build a business unless you own the customer. And it's so, going to be really interesting how this survives in Europe because GDR, uh, GDPR is going to have a fucking field there with that. So he, here's the interesting bit. So in the same way that the gig economy, the most gigsters participating in the gig economy realize, ah, shit, uh, I don't own, uh, here I am after a year of driving around like a madman and I... I have le- z- nothing other than the money I made. I have nothing going forward. If And if they kick me off of this app, I'm toast. Right. And the really smart ones did exactly what Chris said, which is they tried to own the customer. Airbnb hosts know this very well. Like Airbnb sends you a guest. If they really like it, you try and say, hey, here's my WhatsApp. Next time, ping me directly. I'll give you, you're a great customer. Happy to give you a better rate than Airbnb next time. So, um this this idea of the gig economy, you know, left all of those participants uh, without any power because they weren't able they weren't building anything of any uh, long term value that effectively the creator economy might be a lot like the gig economy where the creators are on TikTok and Instagram and WhatsApp and whatever. And they're selling stuff on these e-commerce platforms. We just announced TikTok's partnership with Shopify. And you're going to be selling all day long and you're going to be selling a whole bunch of pool noodles to people. And you're selling 100,000 pool noodles through TikTok in this partnership with Shopify. And then after a year of doing that, you you stop and reflect and you realize, uh, I don't, I'm done. One, the minute you stop selling on TikTok, you have no other option. You d- cannot contact those people who you sold those millions of pool, no- pool noodles to to see if they want to buy next year's version 2.0 of your pool noodle. So, um, indeed, the creator economy is is has has it's 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 a it's a really interesting point that we should start reflecting on now because in this case, Spotify allowing the podcasters to. Um, download their subscribers email addresses means you as the podcaster own your audience that's wild that's there's some crazy security stuff on here too as you want to get creative about it right youtube stars do not have this uh tiktok stars do not have this instagram no nobody has this this is very unconventional in social media this is this is like web in the very beginning when you had the very old shopping carts. You know, you could literally see who was on the site, their IP addresses, what was in there. And then as the shopping carts evolved, you stopped having that visibility because they realized it's a huge security issue. Oh, well, by the way, before Amazon was ruining Christmas or was it Facebook ruined Christmas? But it was like, you know, telling what everyone else was in their gift carts or something like this. And it was like, this would be fun. And it did. Yeah, it was, it was fun. <laughs> Pure so, visibility of shopping carts. Yeah, the... By by the way, Carl, they address your GDPR concern. Spotify is in Europe, and they're intimately familiar with GDPR. Exactly. That's why I'm surprised that this is this has come up because this yeah. flies in the face of every. It's, well, it says it, even this article says this means they can stay in touch better with their subscribers and also take that list elsewhere if they ever leave Anchor. Listeners have to opt in 
to having their exactly there has to be an opt-in there's Ah, no way they do it otherwise it's a it's it's an opt-in to share your email with the podcast or the podcast are we talking like opt-in you agree to use this service by clicking this you share everything and then great question or this going to be like one of those like you'll you'll you might even have to type in the email address that you're willing to share i imagine whoa International users will be able to sell subscriptions in the future, Spotify says, and they'll be able to access paywalled content starting September 15th. As it has been since the subscription product first launched in April, Spotify won't take a cut of revenue until 2023, at which point it will take 5%. There's still no button to subscribe to shows directly inside of Spotify, though, meaning meaning that if a listener wants to subscribe to an Anchor podcast, They'll have to navigate to an external website, likely through a link in the show's notes to do so. This means podcasters have to continue to shout out where listeners can find the link to subscribe, which adds friction to the process. In contrast, Apple's podcast subscription product, which it launched in June and from which takes a much higher cut of revenue, comes with an in-app button. Apple won't, however, provide podcasters with any specific contact information of their subscribers. All of thirty percent the... code your revenue just to have a single fucking button on a web on a web page. This is what the world has come to. Yeah, all of these solutions are leading up to a world in which podcasters might operate multiple backends, if only to be present on every platform. Apple Podcast requires podcasters to use its backend and manually upload episodes to to it if they want to take advantage of the in app button. While Spotify requires people to host an anchor on anchor to make listening on spotify possible spotify is also working on technology called open access which works with third parties to bring paywalled content into the app but but those partnerships are currently preliminary with most partners still developing the technology and integrating to it and now here raises a very interesting question because spotify has an audio ad network meaning they have advertisers that put in little audio commercials into the Spotify stream. If you are a free user of Spotify, you know exactly what I'm talking about. After every five songs, you get a little audio commercial. Somebody has paid for that commercial. As a podcaster, Spotify could say, hey, would you like commercials in the middle of your podcast? We will give you the money. We keep 5%. You get the rest of the money. We can monetize your podcast for you, get sponsors for your podcast for you. Would you like that? We can add it right now. Here's a tick box right here. Opt in. Yes, of course, lots of people are going to say, oh, sweet Jesus, thank you very much. Yes, please put uh, commercials at the beginning and end of my podcast, and I, I will happily take that money. Thank you very much, Spotify. Apple does not do this, right? Apple's taking a 30% cut of your subscription. If people are paying to subscribe to your podcast, they're going to take 30%. Spotify is going to take 5%. Spotify also is going to broadcast your podcast to Google Podcast, Amazon Podcast, and 10 other podcasting platforms automatically. Apple will not. Apple forces you to upload to them directly. Spotify asks you to go through Anchor, which then gets broadcast to multiple podcasting platforms, includes your audio advertising, allows you to own the email address of your uh, subscribers. Now, which platform are uh, podcasters going to use? Perhaps both. But if they had to pick one, which do you think they will use? Apple has more reach as a singular platform. 
Spotify through Anchor gives you 10 platforms in an aggregate is actually bigger than Apple. And then through Anchor slash Spotify, you get to own the email addresses. You get to monetize with the audio ad network and more analytics and data, a smaller cut, uh, 5% versus 30%. I'm assuming this this whole Spotify has the better offering for podcasters is my argument here. I don't it's also an interesting time as well because we've, you know, we've recently had a host where uh, a, a period where millions of people worldwide have been using these new apps, you know, <coughs> Clubhouse, um, to discover that they can talk and that people do want to listen to them, and they've discovered like-minded people that they could host podcasts with. Because before getting into a podcast was a very sort of niche thing; you had to be certain of it's quite scary. You've got to dedicate to it. Um, and it's, you know, it wasn't as enticing as, as just getting a channel on YouTube, for instance, but now we've got all of these people that have suddenly discovered they could do this potentially. And then Spotify comes along and says, Hey, you're doing all this free content on, on clubhouse and you're doing all this free content on spaces. Well, why don't you come over here? You know, we're not going to take a cut for the first year or so and start a podcast and, and make reoccurring continuous passive revenue from it. So it's, it's interesting times. It's, you can uh, as as Clubhouse is uh, known to known to repeatedly say, you can record the rooms and then put upload it to Anchor and monetize mm-hmm. it as a as a podcast. You know, a Clubhouse room can be a podcast for sure. And of course, they can do that with their greenhouse or what, what do they call it? Greenhouse, um, green, green room, room. green room. Um, that green room. green room notably allows at the you to at the start of the room to say give me an export of the audio at the end um precisely for that reason obviously and twitter spaces we don't know yet um of course you could probably record the room and then upload it to anchor as a podcast as well uh, that social audio rooms on all the platforms essentially can be used as podcasts and uh and they very likely will many of them and use anchor to uh, distribute after the fact um so we'll, we'll see how this all shakes out. It's all uh, very interesting. I, I think this Apple's uh, kind of going to get outgunned by Spotify yet again, in the same way that Spotify on the music front um, is kicking Apple's ass, in large part because Spotify's, uh, you know, the Android users of the world, which is a huge population, aren't using Apple Podcasts, and they aren't using Apple Music because their Android phone doesn't have Apple Podcasts or Apple Music. So... Um, Spotify's really got the the advantage in, in this, I think. So we'll, we'll see how this shakes out. The next big headline is from TechCrunch. It says uh, a cybersecurity startup called Hunters builds tech known as Extended Threat Detection and Response (XDR). Raises thirty million dollars from Bessemer, and uh, an investigation details. Separate headline: Investigation details forced entry. An iMessage, a zero-click attack used by NSO Group, the the Israeli outfit who made Pegasus. It's now been revealed there's um, a a new zero-click vulnerability, which is being called forced entry. A new attack by the NSO Group that circumvents iOS 14's defenses, which is internally called Blastdoor, likely used by the Bahraini government, which we talked about in this room 12 hours ago because it was revealed about 12 hours ago that uh, some Bahraini political activists 
Uh, here it is. Phones of nine Bahraini activists found to have been hacked by NSO spyware. Researchers say bloggers and members of a secular left-wing political group among the victims. The mobile phones of nine Bahraini activists, including two who were granted asylum protection, are now living in London, were attacked last year and earlier this year using NSO group spyware, according to new findings uh, from the University of Toronto. And then the question is, well, who hacked them? Well, uh, it's kind of the hint is right there. They're Bahraini political activists. Who do you think would be uh, attacking Bahraini political activists? Uh, maybe Bahrain, maybe. <laughs> yeah, so now the headline today is um, the a cybersecurity startup that builds tech, oh, sorry, the investigation details of forced entry and iMessage zero-click attack used by NSO group that circumvents iOS 14's blast door likely used by the Bahraini government. Summary and key findings, we identify nine Bahraini activists, blah, 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 blah. So now we know um, there's multiple, the point of this headline, just to summarize it for our non-geek friends who might be listening, is NSO group, who's a clearly a very clever elite group of um, vulnerability exploiters, um, have found yet another zero-click entry into your iPhones through iMessage. And internally, they call it forced entry, and it defeats Apple's defenses called Blastdoor in the, even iOS 14. The question is, what do we expect in iOS 15? That's, that's naturally your next question. And the answer to that is, iOS 15 is out in beta right now, and developers are using it. And... Um, Long story short, NSO Group uh, is able to uh, warp Pegasus, their main product, and forced entry, this new zero-click iMessage vulnerability, works in the new version of iOS 15 that you'll be downloading next week. So this, again, going back to Apple's big annual event next week, where they traditionally have 5,000-point font on a, the world's biggest LCD screen saying privacy, and they spend 10 minutes talking about and heralding how they are their unique uh, uh, offering to the smartphone market and why you should choose Apple over Android is because the privacy, 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 all caps, underline, italicized, bold, italics, privacy, privacy, privacy. And now we all know that's a whole bunch of bullshit. You don't got privacy. You're being hacked. I mean... Granted, it's a bit more private than the alternative, but um, it's now publicly known that you've got multiple zero-click vulnerabilities in your platform, and you can't go around claiming privacy, privacy, privacy. Oh, and by the way, you're scanning my device now for photos, uh, whether or not I want, to, I want to tap into that. I mean, on, on multiple different fronts, their whole privacy um, narrative is being challenged. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how Tim Cook and how Apple position themselves at their uh, annual event coming up next week. It, it's, it's not just increased price because I don't think anybody can argue that Android is a, a you know, <laughs> a bit more of a clusterfuck environment where, you know, you take your life in your own hands is the fact that it was thoughtless privacy and thoughtless security, as in if you got an Apple product. And I know this has not always been the case, but this is the narrative that's pushed, like you were saying, Tyler. 
that if you got an Apple product, it was thoughtless privacy. You never had to think about how private it was because it was absolute privacy. And you never had to think about the security as in viruses and hacks because it was absolute. And you never had to think about the security of the, the apps you were downloading because they were vetted um, on the store. And that was why they take such a large cut. And it was absolute 100% certain that um, that the apps were, were going to work, that they would be um, curated that they would perform well and that they would be secure. So it's this concept of perfect, thoughtless, where the user doesn't have to worry about these things. It just works, TM, and that is being lost. Like it's being, as you were saying, it's being chipped away. You know, month on month, as we have these different um, these different headlines come out, and I, I don't know if they can if they can get that back because people are learning now that, that the whole thing was a facade. So. Next headline is from CNN and many others that Brian Chesky, who's the founder, co-founder, CEO of Airbnb, will provide free housing for 20,000 Afghan refugees without specifying for how long. And um, and the headline doesn't specify that it's um, a, a lot of that is from the hosts themselves. Uh, who are hosting them for free, <laughs> not Airbnb. Airbnb is just asking the host, hey, anyone want to host uh, refugees? Oh, you do? Okay, great. How many do we got? Okay, we got enough to host 20,000? Okay, great. Hey, we're going to host 20,000 Afghan refugees, uh, and Airbnb gets all of the beautiful PR. And, um, and the hey, host... Hey, Tyler, there's, yeah. a, there's a sign-up sheet on the site, uh, and you can host. Uh, yeah. You can volunteer to host, by the way. Yeah. I'm very aware. My my point is is that it's the hosts who are the generous uh, folks here, and it's Airbnb who's disproportionately getting a lot of the PR value out of this, as looking like these. Fan- and what they did was say, "Hey, we made a sign up page. <laughs> we made a sign up page. Do you want to host uh, refugees? Oh, you do. Okay, great. Okay, we have uh, enough hosts to host twenty thousand Afghan refugees. Uh, give us that sweet, sweet, juicy." Um, you know, we're helping the world PR. Thank you very much. Uh, we made a we made a website for our our host to click a button to say they're going to uh, host refugees. Now, granted, it was their idea, um, and they do deserve applause and a little bit of credit for um, saying, "Hey, host, do you want to host these?" Um, so, yeah, in fairness, you know, I'm not I'm not being critical of Airbnb in this way. I'm just pointing out that the headline reads Airbnb to host 20,000 Afghan refugees. No, Airbnb is not hosting any refugees. Airbnb hosts are hosting yes. Afghan refugees. If if you got a building of your own, if if Airbnb owns properties and they're going to start hosting refugees, well then great, that's the right headline. I I would love to see a headline that says Airbnb hosts uh, with the support of Airbnb, are going to host twenty thousand refugees. That might be a little more fair of a headline. Are they? Um, are they American hosts, or it's just for international hosts? Great question. Um, I think, um, yeah, it, it was in the news on CNN last night and this morning as well, just a couple of hours ago. They are saying that they are actually working on determining what location it might be because they think there is a transition in Germany, which they seem to be stuck there with tent and stuff. So they said it might be there as well as it might be in the U.S. Uh, temporary housing, because even once they get resettled in the U.S., that the housing 
and the stuff is going to be an issue. So they were saying that they don't know how long it's going to be, but they stated that uh, it might be, um, you know, temporary sheltering of a resettlement program, trying to even coordinate with resettlement NGOs and things like that in the U.S. But one of the questions, Tyler, that you brought up and I was asking even on the TV <laughs> to to a screen was that is Airbnb going to pay the right. host? It looks the like they are money. because Brian's on Brian's Twitter account, he says, that the Afghan refugees uh, aren't paying. So that means somebody's somebody's paying. The question is, is the host paying or is Airbnb paying? And that's not it's clear. In, it's in the uh, uh, BBC article to say, while we will be paying for this stage, we could not do this without the generosity of our host. The company said that the cost of the stage would be funded through contributions from Airbnb and Mr. Chesky, as well as donors to the airbnb.org refugee fund. Okay. Looks yeah, like exactly. That's what, yeah, that's exactly what the reporter on CNN was saying that she actually talked to some people there and that even though they cannot say exactly how much money and how long, because some of them, if they are getting into their destination, they have no idea how long it's going to be. You know, it could be a year that, you know, until they get the work and status and this and that. So they said they're working on determining how long, which locations, and how the subsidies work. Because some people are contributing, they want to open their doors, but some of them, Airbnb, uh, might be, uh, you know, paying the bills. So that's but they didn't want to make it clear and give exact amount of number and things like that, except saying 20,000 refugee hosting. At least that's what they were saying on CNN. Okay. The next one is uh, from The Verge. It's a review of Samsung's new Galaxy Z Fold 3. They're foldable, water-resistant phone with an improved screen feel and multitasking but terrible under screen camera expensive and heavy and then the next one also from the verge is about groovy bot which lets discord users play music from youtube videos and other services is shutting down august 30th after youtube sent a cease and desist notice and the next one is from Bloomberg about Shield AI, which develops AIs and self-driving tech for military and commercial aircraft, raises $210 million as part of a Series D at a valuation of about $1.25 billion. Brian Sang, a former Navy SEAL who served in Afghanistan and other overseas deployments, developed the idea for his startup Shield AI. And let's see here. Self-driving tech for military and commercial aircraft. Ah, it's drones. He's making drones, (laughs) military drones. And um, let me tweet this out so you can see a photo of their rather beautiful military drones that are self- um, The drones essentially in the beginning used to protect uh, troops that used to go into buildings in dangerous areas of the Middle East and uh, Afghanistan and tribal areas of Pakistan in the mountains, etc. That's how they started. And I think now they're much more, much more advanced than that. He developed the idea for the startup Shield AI to solve a problem specific to what he and his colleagues saw in the field. One of the most dangerous tasks for American ground troops in the Middle East was entering buildings that might contain armed fighters. So Shield, founded in 2015, built 
fleets of small autonomous drones that would go in first and send photos and maps to soldiers waiting nearby. The U.S. military has used SHIELDS technology in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria. The end of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan marks a new era for the military and for SHIELD. The company has spent the better part of this year acquiring new technology and pitching officials and investors on a future beyond the Middle East that includes the potential for conflict with China or Russia, according to Tseng and other senior employees. On August 24th, SHIELD had raised $210 million from investors, including... Uh, disruptive technology advisors, which valued the company at $1.25 billion. That makes Shield one of the few unicorns serving the military sector. It's closing on an additional $90 million in debt and equity investments in the next several weeks. Shield secured about $17 million in military contracts in 2020, according to Tech Inquiry and a corporate watchdog that tracks military contracting. That's easily the company's best year to date. Da, 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 da. Okay. Yeah, and there's a photo of one of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s small autonomous drones. It looks like a little DJI drone with a couple of cameras. And S.H.I.E.L.D. executives spent the end of August at their San Diego headquarters holding the first extended face-to-face meetings with leaders of two companies acquired this summer. And uh, yeah, I tweeted that one out so you can see that from the Tech News Twitter account. Where, where they're wrong is about the... Um, not, uh, I think there's one one line in there that makes it look like there's very few startups that get funded by the government and then there's very few startups that come out of situations like this. In fact, there's an enormous number of startups that come out of situations like this and get funded by government agencies, particularly by individuals that have worked in agencies or by in militaries and have, and have seen these issues out there. Um, I, I, I think that's a fact. I'm not sure if you agree with me or not. Uh, an interesting quote at the end of the article says, AI is the next arms race, according to um, one of the people they interviewed here, saying, we're, we, we were paddling ahead of the wave so we could jump on our surfboard and get on. He says, the wave is coming. AI and drones, militarized use of AIs and drones is coming. Okay, I think we knew that. But the next big article at the moment is, um, a company called No Red Inc., which aims to improve students' writing through a curriculum that pairs adaptive learning with Mad Lib style prompts, raises fifty million dollars. And other interesting little fundraisings headlines right now is um, Walmart announces Go Local, a logistics service for third-party U.S. merchants with a variety of delivery types, including same-day deliveries. Powered by Walmart for mom and pops all over the place who want to be able to sell and have stuff delivered same day. And as you've heard me rant rather endlessly in the the past few weeks, whoever owns the delivery owns the customer and whoever owns the customer owns the business. So Walmart offering to this platform so that mom and pop shops can piggyback on top of Walmart's incredible huge investment into deliveries because you can, just like Amazon, you can go to walmart.com and buy pretty much anything and they deliver it just like Amazon does. And Amazon themselves deliver it. They used to use UPS and FedEx, but they knew they wanted to do their own deliveries. And so does Walmart. And that's why Walmart and Amazon went to great lengths and great costs to do their own deliveries. Because if you do the delivery, you ultimately control the relationship with the customer. You can circumvent the ordering app. But in this case, 
they have both. Amazon is where you order it and who delivers it, but they care not who makes it. <laughs> and if it's really good stuff, uh, whoever, if they see somebody on their platform getting a lot of orders, in the case of Amazon, let's unpack this. This is super important for everyone to understand what's really going on here. Amazon is where you get the order and the delivery. In between, it's a marketplace of a lot of products. Amazon's watching the data of the buyers and the sellers. If a seller starts doing really well, we've all seen Amazon steps in and says, oh, that, that seller's doing really well. We can replicate that product, sell it for less, and hide that seller who was previously selling really well and put, our put us in their place and start selling that product instead of them. So that this is this is very well known that this is happening. Amazon's competing with their own sellers on their platform, right? Easy easy peasy, common sense. So, now you have Walmart. Walmart is receiving the orders, also doing the delivery. They're willing to add you as a small mom and pop into their platform. And they might even let you, it's not clear yet, uh if you are receiving orders in some other app, uh, you as a mom and pop as a fishing store, a cake store, a shoe shop can say, ah, uh, we have a website and now we can build a website knowing that we can offer delivery through Walmart. Now, be careful because Walmart is a data company just like Amazon. And that's why they get so big. It's the ones who know how to manage data are the ones who win. So Walmart could italicize that last word could disrupt mom and pops oh by the way walmart for the entire history in america for those who don't who aren't americans all the americans know all too well walmart has more than any company in the history of america decimated small mom and pop companies across america utterly gutted utterly obliterated decimated scorched earthed small mom and pop businesses around America. Nobody has done that. Not only not only that, but they'd introduced the term China price to the American consumer, um, you know, and then that crushed the manufacturing sector too. So the point is now that Walmart's saying, ah, we want to help mom and pops. Say what? This is like Satan himself saying, ah, we, we're opening a nursery. Would you like to bring your children to hell on earth nursery? Please step right in. It's incredibly, uh, we're just here to help. And you as a mom and pop now can use our delivery platform. And we will deliver the goods to your customers. And we might uh, be watching that data very carefully. And if you're one of the lucky mom and pops that we didn't destroy over the past 40 years, you can now uh, ride on top of our delivery system. We will do the delivery and steal your customer and then uh, kill you as well. That's my little conspiracy theory here. Feel free to come up uh, with your own counter perspective. But are we to believe that Walmart now is going to shift a 40-year trend of decimating mom-and-pop shops and start enabling them through their delivery systems, which we know these delivery systems can hold the balance of power of you know taking over the relationship, owning the customer, and then owning the business? Do we not think I don't even think they're thinking that far ahead. I think this is just a recognition that they've been completely outmaneuvered 
And they're they're so desperate to become relevant again that that they're Fair basically point. trying to copy paste the the model that yep. uh, Amazon and and others right the you know uh, Alibaba in in China. Yep. But the reality is that you've got to have a critical mass of yep. customers, yep. and they've they they never managed to get that online critical mass, and yes. they're desperate for anything to be able to reach that yep. critical mass. I agree with you. I am curious whether they will have the data of what is being sold, or they are just you know purely doing the delivery. Because if they are aware of, if they have the data of what is being sold, they can do exactly what Amazon is doing to actually do a Walmart run to actually take over the business. So you know the new yeah. fuels brand. You know what I'm trying to say, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so a look at Belarusian cyber part. Partitions, a hacking group that has released a huge data trove, including from the government and police, to undermine Lukashenko in Belarus. So now you've got the hacking community in um, in Minsk undermining um, Lukashenko, who most Belarusians would love to see uh, um, kind of step out. They they host massive protests very regularly in uh, Belarus to get Lukashenko out and uh, he's really cracked down quite hard and now uh, Bloomberg is doing a look at the Belarusian cyber hacking group that has released a huge data trove including from the government and the police to undermine Lukashenko the question they also obtained mortality statistics in indicating that thousands more people in Belarus died from COVID-19 than the government has publicly acknowledged video footage from police drones and detention centers. And they've hacked and sabotaged 240 surveillance cameras in Belarus. Data obtained by the hackers could be a major significance in the long term, according to experts, bolstering international efforts to sanction Lukashenko and his subordinates as the trove provides evidence of officials ordering beatings of citizens during last year's protests and a couple more tweets here. Uh, it's a fascinating development. The hackers are collaborating with former Belarusian police officers who defected from the country last year, citing election fraud and violence against protesters. And that's the big claim is that this, it was an illegitimate election that he's, he held, did a dirty election to keep himself in power. Um, the cyber part, Partisans, as they're called, are pretty bold. They, they hacked Belarus's interior ministry by having someone in Belarus physically enter a government facility and break into a computer network there, leaving a backdoor that was further exploited by a team operating remotely. And according to the article, the they were preparing to shut down the government computers with malicious software named XApp, wondering what they're referring to. So uh, now the hackers say in an interview they're preparing to shut down the Belarus government computers with this malicious software called XApp and are planning for a period that they say will combine computer sabotage with physical uprising on the streets. That's interesting. Hackers uh, and activists slash protesters actually um, uh, shutting down the government's computer systems. That's one way to do it. Well, we've been, I mean, World War Three has been a cyber warfare from the beginning, right? And and you, you can see where uh, R Russia uh, did this in Ukraine, some very, very interesting stories. It's been going on for some time. What's interesting is that the uh, government, uh, you know, state actors 
are not the only actors in in the new world war right and uh, the 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 fact is that as long as you're organized you you can you can get a group that's formed around a particular objective and i think this is just the beginning yeah Baidu says, uh, Baidu is the Google of China. Baidu says AI voice assistants, uh, their their version of Google Assistant called Xiaodu, uh, has raised a Series B round at a $5 billion valuation. And the an automotive cybersecurity startup called Upstream raised $62 million, uh, led led by... An insurance company, a Japanese insurance company called Mitsui Sumitomo Insurance, which is Mitsui's one of the biggest banks. And um, so for an insurance company to be the an investor in an automotive cybersecurity startup called Upstream, and now they're announcing plans to expand into insurance data analytics because auto insurance with data is going to win over all the other insurance companies that are not using data on the cars because you can offer far better offerings and products and services with that data for not just auto insurance, all insurances, health insurance, all insurances, whoever has the the smart analytics and data will win the insurance and the insurance is trillions and trillions of dollars. Here it comes. And interesting that this Japanese um, insurance, uh, giant is investing in this automotive cybersecurity startup and saying, Hey guys, uh, yeah, you, you're a bunch of really smart, uh, geeks with, uh, automotive stuff. Uh, we're a big auto insurance company. How about you do some insurance data analysis analysis and uh, we partner up brilliant, totally brilliant win-win on both there. Um, so next one is, Brazilian startup called Cora, which offers a digital checking account and other financial services to SMBs, raises 116 million. So Brazil's getting into the uh, digital banking, and uh, some an, a company called Urbant, which uses AI to detect threats to critical infrastructure, raises 60 million. So another cybersecurity company raises a bunch of money. Chinese e-company Chinese e-commerce company Pinduoduo reports 3.6 billion dollars in Q2 revenue up 90% year over year as net income reaches 370 million and pledges 1.5 billion towards developing agriculture so this is uh, the company that deserves the credit for really popularizing social com- you could even say creating um, the social commerce phenomena that is coming to the re when you see TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram and uh, everybody Pinterest adding e-commerce to their end Shopify um, and Spotify all in the past two weeks. In fact, many of them in the past 48 hours announcing they're adding e-commerce offerings to their platforms. You can thank Pinduoduo, this company, uh, the Chinese e-commerce company, reporting $3.6 billion in the last three months. They're making well over a billion dollars a month. And with revenue up 89% in the past 12 months, they are booming. Absolutely. At that scale, making $3.6 bill, making a billion dollars a month and doubling in size over the last 
in a year. That's booming. But they're huge, and they're still doubling in size. It's not easy to double in size when you're already fucking tremendously massive. That's not easy. It's easy to double in size when you're a tiny little nothing. Doubling's super simple when you have one customer. You added another customer. You have two customers. You just doubled. That's great. Doubling when you're making a billion dollars a month, that ain't easy. They're doing that. That's social commerce in China. So um, the next headline is uh, a company called Ram. Can we yeah. can we step back just one second? Yeah. That's in total sales, or is that revenue that Pinduoduo generated? Pinduoduo reports their own revenue of three Jesus points. Christ. I know. Jesus like, how, what's Christ. the commission? I don't. I can't imagine how much how many transactions they're doing. They're com- well, maybe they're making five percent, so you can do twenty x on that. That's sixty. No, about Jesus. eighty billion dollars of sales. That's yeah. See, they're they're. It's not. That's why I said people are way underestimating how much uh, how big this whole space is. To put it in perspective, I was looking at Amazon's uh, financials. Uh, I think they did close to five hundred billion uh, last year. In sales, in in top line, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm curious how much in in com e-commerce revenue they did for the quarter. We could compare. So, um, still tons of growth left for them in this space, and they're comp- They have their own Amazon in China, which is Alibaba essentially, and JD. They have two instead of just one. America has one Amazon. China has two JD and Alibaba. And Pinduoduo still comes in and just cleans up with this whole social commerce phenomena. Um, anyway, the next one is a, a company called Blockstream, which offers Bitcoin infrastructure and apps, raises 210 and will acquire Israeli mining manufacturers. A, as con- Here's one. As Congress fails to regulate big tech, <laughs> state and local governments move ahead to pass their own laws on privacy, gig work, anti-competitive conduct, and more. Well, okay. Bloomberg reporting a company called Bungalow, a marketplace for residential real estate that offers tools for landlords, raises $75 million, And that's going to be a huge space. The digitization and the and the... The digitization of real estate is going to be massive. And companies like this, a marketplace for residential real estate that offers tools to landlords, uh, makes a lot of sense. The next one, Samsung says it will hire 40,000 employees over the next three years in a $205 billion expansion led by Samsung Electronics and Biologics. And Apple and Google call on the White House to oppose South Korean bill set to face a vote this week that would mandate multiple payment systems for IAPs, meaning Korean apps won't have to use the app stores, the Apple and Google app stores. And you can imagine how freaked out Apple and Google are over the fact that Korea is now going to make it law that Korean developers won't have to use uh, the app stores. And that will have a domino effect for sure. If that passes, you will see other countries being like, oh, wait a minute. Wait, we can do that too? You're going to have Russia, everybody. 
yeah, all kinds of countries are going to be like, wait a minute, why, why aren't we doing the same thing? Why are our well, developers? Google's already allowing other alternative app stores. This is really no, no, and... no, 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 Andy. They, the, the the court documents in this court case that is unfolding right now, you know very well. Epic Games, Tim Sweeney, the CEO, is in a massive court case, one of the biggest Google's ever had right now about precisely this point. And they now have the court documents of the emails of Google's own employees showing they're paying Samsung money to shut down the Samsung App Store. And they're incentivizing and more properly disincentivizing. They've got the receipts. They're in the court documents. Google's going to great lengths to disincentivize anybody from creating competing app stores on Android and even went so far as to attempt to acquire Epic Games to stop them from doing this lawsuit. So shit is about to go down on Google. They're going to lose this lawsuit because they are violently using incredible monopolistic power to stop competing app stores on Android. Period. This was Andy's alley. I can't Android. find well, my, my then point feel free feel free to defend the undefensible here Andy to have an alternative app store on Android you know Google obviously has a lot of monetary incentive to make that as hard to exploit as possible right I, I agree with you that that you know it's such a big money maker for them that that they don't want that to be visible or no known to people right the the, the point is a- apple shut down all the avenues that used to exist uh, except for the the minimal one which is test flight yeah. right and and so the, these are different orders of magnitude uh, yeah. I, I think these laws are going to affect apple way more than google google's already got means of navigating around and as, as you say disincentivizing the alternatives right yeah. Uh, Apple has much fewer choices. Yes. Yes. And Google intelligently is going to say, hey, you can make an app store on Google. It's no problem. Right here. Here's the code. Here's how we show how people how to do it right here in the in the SDK. You make your own app store. Samsung had their own app store. Other people have app stores. Everyone's got app stores. Anyone can have an app store. No problem. No problem. No problem. It's all good. Anyone can have an app store. Google very intelligently is going to make that case as strongly as they can. The problem is the receipts were found of internal Google communications and and uh, initiatives to once those stores are built to swiftly shut them down. Well, I I don't know why this comes as a shock as anyone when when it's not a shock, (laughs) right? You know, this is this is what the artificial life form known as a corporation is designed to do. Yes. Is get the money flow going where it maximizes the money. Right. Sure. Uh, the, the the issue isn't that employees are doing what the corporation programs them to do. The the issue is, uh, you know, how are we governing through the artificial life form known as uh, n- n- nations and and uh, you know other uh, state and and city and locality actors, right? What what are these artificial life forms doing to uh, regulate that? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Well, to be to be determined, to be continued. So the next biggest headline is Poly Network says it's recovered the six hundred ten million dollars from the hacker. Okay, great. So now we get into what we've all been waiting for, which is the not the big headlines that we just went through that your cousins and coworkers will mention at your next barbecue, but these are 
we've been most of those headlines we just read, we are familiar with much much of that going back many months because we this the headlines that we're now getting into are the tweets that everyone's been twatting on Twitter. And they've uh, conveniently added our Twitter account to their tweet, which anyone can do so that we see it. And um, like this one from Joe Williams that I'm about to read from Yahoo Finance and 50 others. And these are there's hundreds of tweets that we get every few hours and we cherry pick out the best ones. There's a lot of duplicates because people correctly find um, share uh, interest in some of these issues. And the duplicates are very helpful. It lets us know that multiple people think this is an interesting story that we should talk about here. And now we've picked out our favorites and we're going to discuss them as a group with our combined diverse set of uh, skills and talents. And um, you you can do this too, either by raising your hand and jumping up on stage and sharing a headline or do it from the comfort of your sofa in the audience there and just tweet it out and include our Twitter account, TNATW. And then if we like it, as we discuss the headlines, as we're about to do now, as with each headline we discuss, I will retweet it out to our Twitter account. So I'm going to retweet Joe right now, Joe Williams, who sent this one in from Yahoo Finance. I'm just retweeting it. So now if you go to our Tech News Twitter account, you'll see the tweet from Joe that he sent in. And he sent in one that says, country now comes before profit for tech giants in G's China from Yahoo Finance. And, um, and he included... TNATW as part of his tweet. That's how we know he, that's how we saw it. We got notified and now we retweeted it to you, to our ever-growing, I think we're up to 5,000 Twitter followers on the, on, the, on the Tech News Twitter account. And so Yahoo Finance's headline is actually from Bloomberg where it says uh, China now, uh, or putting China first. China comes before profit for tech giants in China. China's biggest companies are starting to make a habit out of giving away their earnings. In the latest example, they talk about Pinduoduo, the company we we're just talking about, the big social commerce company. In the latest example, Pinduoduo, an e-commerce company known for giving big discounts to customers when they buy produce together as a group, said it will donate all of its first net profit since going public to support the country's farmers and agricultural areas. We just read that in the headline. They're giving away $1.5 billion, right? We read that 10 minutes ago. The company will keep giving away earnings at least until the donations reach $1.5 billion. There it is in, the, in this article from Bloomberg. And here's a quote. Improving agriculture has been at the front and center of our business from the very beginning. Agriculture teaches the daily lives of everyone and has a relatively low digitization rate. Chief Executive Officer Chen Lai told analysts on a post-results call literally hours ago. We want to bring even more farmers on board and work with them to improve their lives and livelihood. Pinduoduo's announcement comes after a series of similar contributions from the country's biggest companies and wealthiest people. Tencent, China's most valuable company, said last week it will double the amount of money it's allocating for social responsibility programs to about $15 billion. Pinduoduo's co-founder Colin Huang had earlier pledged to personally bankroll research into sciences. President Xi Jinping has increasingly emphasized the idea of quote-unquote common prosperity as the Communist Party tries to address the country's wealth gap. Regulators are forcing most private education companies to convert into nonprofits while they've pushed other tech players to boost pay for low-skilled workers at expense of earnings. Pinduoduo's decision squarely targets one of Xi's top priorities, allevi alleviating rural poverty. In the U.S., 
companies used to make charitable contributions out of corporate profits. But the practice, de the practice declined after criticism that CEOs were using shareholder money for their own glory. Investors had no such qualms about Pinduoduo's pledge. Shares rose 22% in U.S. trading after the company unveiled the new set of the surprise profit the quarter, for the quarter. The move shows the company's willingness to take social responsibility and explore new opportunities in a blue ocean, though profit margin may be pressured again by these investments. Analysis at China's International Capital Corp wrote in a research note, we expect um, profits to break even in the second half of 2021, reflecting all the profits will be invested in the initiative, meaning China's big tech companies are now going to be giving away their profits to shrink the wealth gap to the country's poorest individuals because Uncle Xi has said so. And because if they don't, their companies will be yeah, it's an existential question for right. them. And and if you're growing, I mean, you're you're, you're going to be doing this anyway. You you're, you're going to be investing so much in growth. So why not combine the two and inoculate yourself, get yourself in safe harbor from the clear winds of, of government change? Uh, th this is a smart move. It's it's interesting. It's you know a really cultural interesting. Uh, thing to reflect on because the you the um, I, I, I mean you do have bill gates giving away a billion dollars for climate change you have jeff bezos also gave away a billion dollars for um charitable causes um the government's not asking him to do that and the government's not wink wink threatening to um make your company disappear if you don't the the, the the Chinese approach to this is really interesting. The the leader of the country says we need to shrink the wealth gap. We need to have common prosperity. And within 24 hours, you have the biggest tech company, their version of, say, uh, Amazon. At Tencent, there isn't really a direct comparison. Tencent is uh, WeChat, which is the super app of China. And Tencent first committed $7.5 billion. And then hours later, added another $7.5 for a total of $15 billion. Within 24 hours of the national leader saying, we need to have common prosperity of the people. And the biggest tech company says, how's $7.5 billion? No, no, make it $15 billion. And then Pinduoduo saying, Here, here's, we can give $1.5 billion for the common prosperity of you know, China's uh, lowest earners. And I think I think the CCP want to be seen as a hero that saves. I think the bribe money is just coming out into the open now. It's we need David Chang in here Good to give PR. us the real. <laughs> okay, that's being him. I mean, what I'm you, you get what I'm saying, right? Like absolute power corrupts absolutely. My my They're point is, hush money, the government and could... now it's finally coming out, and it's to quell the population. It's not to keep. Uh, industry in check it's to quell the population when all the rampant corruption comes out the Actually, it's a slower and more subtle process in the west right i think the mistakes that china makes is that they 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 make it a little bit too uh obvious and and easy to pick apart right you can see the same thing it's just slower and more subtle it, it the, the difference is that uh, you know, putting together the signals and getting the signals out of the noise is just much harder here in the West. Death by a thousand cuts. Well, we're also here. The, the bigger issue is 
the American tech companies are avoiding taxes in a way that the American uh, citizens are aware of and a bit uh, upset about, I would say. And it's starting, there's starting to be a whole lot of narrative about, you know, the 1% and the haves and the have nots and the tech companies aren't paying their fair share of taxes and the education and the healthcare is falling apart and the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And, you know, and much of that narrative is um, likely being spread on social media. And but it, but it, no one asks, no one asks why. Um, and, and I don't have the right number, but uh, Pelosi's worth an obscene amount of money working on a public servant salary. Um, I'm, I'm just playing the role of Charles here because he's not okay, here. Fair enough. But the 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 way, you know, it's just interesting how it happened, how, how different uh, countries deal with these different issues. And uh, you're I think you're right, Cheryl. This does make the, it's, it's an interesting way to do it. The company looks good. Uh, I guess uh, the uh, G looks good in doing this. Um, it makes the party look good, the system look good or the country look good or whatever. It's, it's a really interesting way that couldn't really be replicated in the U.S. It's a you know, it's, it's a, just a wild it's a wild way about going about it. And it, it it looks them look um, charitable when we you know in reality they don't re- really have a choice <laughs> perhaps. Um, so anyway, next biggest headline is uh, from Poppy who sends this one in from space dot com. The headline reads: NASA awards five hundred thousand dollars, half a million dollars to develop moon mining tech. Use of lunar resources such as water, ice, is key to establishing a sustainable human presence on the moon, NASA says. And uh, SpaceX just won a large contract, what what was it, $2 billion, to build a lunar base, did they not? Which uh, Jeff Bezos got very upset about and even tried to stop it and even paid to have a reevaluation. And... um, and then it was now been reported that uh, many of the core people on the Jeff Bezos Blue Orbit team uh, have left to go join the the SpaceX team. Bum, 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 bum. Specifically, the team members who were would be working on the lunar base for Blue Origin, which they didn't win the contract, so they don't. Uh, yeah, they just moved over to whoever won the contract because they want to build the lunar base because that's what they want to do. They're going to go to whichever company got the contract to do it. So very unfortunate for our friend Jeff. So the next one is also from Poppy, also about SpaceX, also from space.com. Elon Musk's SpaceX may launch a tiny Canadian satellite that will live stream ads from space, is the headline. And the next one's from Evan via PC Mag. The headline reads, chipset shortage now affects everybody except Apple. U.S. stores are reporting shortages of Samsung and OnePlus phones, but there are plenty of iPhones to go around for the time being. And because Tim Cook himself, CEO of Apple, said, we do have a lot of supply of chips and they do um, are flexing. I mean, the reason Steve Jobs put uh, one of the key reasons that he chose Tim Cook as his successor to be the CEO of Apple is because he was in charge of the supply chain. And one of the strengths of Apple is their command of the supply chains throughout the world. And, 
they simplify the supply chain too, which is such a huge impact, right? Like one chip for all of the, you know, most of their, their new Macs, um, one chip for their iPad, you know, they're probably going to migrate to the same chip for the iPhone once the, once the foundries catch up. Yeah, but it goes, um, it goes beyond simplification, right? Because Apple generally sets the precedence for uh, the hard on the hardware level of um, you know the screens, the, the the batteries, and all the just the how the phones themselves are architected each year. It's everyone's copying Apple on the hardware. Traditionally, that's that now that's starting to change. But my point is, is that for example. Apple, when they b- developed the first iPhone, originally went to Intel for the chips. And Intel said, uh, you know, here's our price to make that, and here's what we can do in terms of nanometers on the chips. And Apple said, that's not good enough. And they went to TSMC in Taiwan and said, hey, can you make this? And Taiwan said, absolutely, we can make that. And this now this is part a big part of the reason why TSMC is now one of the biggest chip companies in the world. And, and it's her- Samsung had it first, though. Samsung was doing um, the A7 or whatever when when TSMC picked it up. So Sam, it was Samsung's game to lose on that particular processor. So the but the the fact that TSM, TSMC owes a lot of its uh, economic success to Apple specifically. Oh, absolutely. Ex- yeah. Explain. I mean, yeah, the, the Koreans the, uh, have HTC. never been as good at supply chain as uh, as Apple has. I, I, I was I was working for LG for many years and, and could see what ultimately led to their uh, exit of the business. You, you remember when Samsung phones were uh, were exploding uh, and, and they, they, you know, they had big contracts with airlines. It was so crazy. Uh, they, they had the opportunity and it, it, what prevented it was supply chain, right? They did not have the contracts in place to be able to quickly take the phones that, that could have sold and bring them to the market and, and bring it through. And this is a hidden strength of Apple that many people who aren't in the industry don't understand just the depths to, that they go to, to lock up supplies, lock yeah. up critical items, yeah. understand exactly where the choke points are and execute. Yes, and they monopolize even the flights going in and out of uh, the key supply chain points, and uh, months and months in advance. This is this was demonstrated when uh, the iPhone 10 came out, and they had issues with the um, with the face. I'm sorry, my, it's late. Uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the the facial detection, um, and what they did is they flew a ton of the um, the phones over to Japan that had the sensors and were integrating them at that spot. And we were watching it on uh, Mac rumors or whatever, as it was going down. But this, the fact that and Apple, quite, Oh, go, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. And it's quite right because I used to be working for Samsung engineering, not for Samsung, you know, uh, electronics, but the Samsung group has always this problem with management, like a project management, also supply chain management. So, and also including QAQC too. So I just wanted to say, yeah, and it's quite right about that too. Yeah, but the, the point, the point I'm trying to make here is that it's not a surprise that Apple has chips when no one else does because they're flexing um, their supply chain prowess and their relation TSMC. The, Apple made an announcement three months ago that we're going to have phones uh, don't worry about us. We're going to be fine on our supply because uh, TSMC had to make a decision which customer they're going to support. And they, not not surprisingly, chose Apple. <laughs> so 
uh, we were, for, you know, first in line at the feeding trough and we got our chips. However, they are already pre-warning that by the time Christmas rolls around, that the a few of the devices, I think they named the iPad and one others, will have lower uh, supply. So, yeah, they they can't change the fact that the that the entire pipeline has blockages, right? Yep. But what they can do is they can pay premiums to ensure that they're the first customer. In line. Great point as well, because they have far better margins, right? So they call this a most favored nation tactic, right? Well, the point is, is that they can. Uh, pay more, you know, like when you go to the dry cleaner and you can pay. Yeah, they for, have the margin to give. Right. You When you go to the dry cleaner and you can pay to jump to the front of the queue to get your stuff done in an hour, if they'll charge you a premium for that. You got to pay a bit more. Apple can pay a bit more to jump to the front of the queue because they make more percentage of profit on their each device. They and have, the ROI yeah, on but, that premium is massive. Yeah. Yeah, but Tyler, there's also another fact that the more dependent U.S. companies are are on Taiwan's chips after Afghanistan, Taiwan is now trying to create whatever dependency they can. You know, you got to protect Taiwan next. Yeah, that's been... yeah, it's also guaranteed to be the next global flashpoint. Yeah, that, because this, of these things. Yeah, this is a really interesting point, which is really interesting. That is literally the day after TSMC says they're going to put a factory in Japan. Japan says we're going to defend Taiwan if China attacks with our Navy. What an interesting coincidence. And and I just tweeted and I just tweeted an article about the TSMC fab in Arizona. Right. And then TSMC now saying they're going to go into Germany and Germany happens to have their Navy off the coast of Taiwan. What an interesting coincidence! So TSM, oh, you, you you can be guaranteed that the uh, that the just diplomacy behind this has been going on for many many months. Well, check this out because Taiwan would love countries to recognize them uh, as an official country and welcome them into the UN system and whatever. And TSMC has got everybody by the you know what. And saying, oh, you want our chips? Okay, how about a little formal recognition uh, in the UN? Yeah, yeah, I understand China might, uh, you know, attack you. Uh, but do you want the chips or not? Because we have we have about 1,000 people in line here. Uh, who's next? <laughs> so it, that's now, when we're trying to figure out why are all the navies of the world all in the South China Sea? Why is uh, Vice President Harris in Singapore and Vietnam? And doing a circle of this, uh, you know, the well, in Germany specifically, right? right? Automotive industry. Yeah, exactly right. They don't have a choice. They have no choice. Germany of all has no choice because they have to. The, the spice must flow with the German cars. The Germany's is a little bit heavy on their re- dependency on the German auto industry, and that auto industry is a little bit dependent on the chips. So uh, th- when 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 Taiwan says, hey, you want these chips or not, Germany says, we don't have a choice. And what, what, what's it going to take, Taiwan, to get these chips? Oh, well, why don't you bring your Navy over here uh, and park it off the coast here? Because we're having a, a neighbor who's a little uh, aggressive with flying airplanes over us every 30 minutes. So the next big headline at the moment is uh, we covered the chips at one. Thank you to Evan for that one. Um. Althena AI raises $16 million in a private token sale for intelligent NFTs for the metaverse. 
this is getting crazy now. <laughs> this is too many mega threads in one headline. NFTs, that's a huge space. AIs, that's a huge space. And the metaverse. Those are the three big massive oh where's my tech news bingo card (laughs) yeah exactly right we have bingo everybody ai nft and the metaverse all in one headline Uh, althena ai raises 16 million in a token sale that's crypto for intelligent nfts for the metaverse bingo we all win bingo everybody we can all go home that's that's the subway too what the only thing we're missing is autonomous vehicles in that headline um the Alethia, sorry, it's Alethia AI creator of the Intelligent NFTs or INFTs has raised $16 million, um, to a, to a group of game and crypto investors. The company's creating what it considers to be the underlying AI infrastructure for NFTs or intelligent non-fungible tokens on a path to the metaverse. This is starting to sound like a joke article, by the way. Uh, on the path to the metaverse, the universe of virtual worlds that are all interconnected like the novels such as Snow Crash and Ready Player One. Alethia is building scalable AI infrastructures for NFTs, enabling NFTs to be animated, interactive, and intelligent through OpenAI's Foundation's GPT-3 technology, which is a learning AI that shapes natural language responses to queries. Alethia AI sold tokens to lead lead purchasers, Metapurse and Crypto.com Capital uh, other strategic partners in the token sale included Multicoin, Alameda, Mark Cuban, Bitcraft, Draper Labs, Galaxy Interactive, and uh, my uh, Jesus, and way more. The sale also attracted strategic operators like Who Cares? And there is a Cambrian explosion in innovation and creativity happening in the NFT space with avatar communities launching at a scale and speed we've never thought possible, says RF Khan, CEO of Alethia AI, in an email with GamesBeat. Whether it is penguins or bored apes, new intellectual property is being created from the bottom up without the involvement of major corporate studios or large budgets. Creators and communities will soon demand to do more with their NFTs, creating meaningfully rich, free-flowing, and interactive consumer experiences built on crypto-native stack, and we'll be making that possible through Alethia AI protocol. So the idea is, in the metaverse, you will have an avatar, right? You can walk around looking like uh, uh, something that looks like yourself. And in fact, we see this last week with uh, Facebook's new workspaces where you go into this workspace and it looks like you. And Mark Zuckerberg was there and you could tell it was Mark because it kind of looked like Mark Zuckerberg, like a cartoonish version of Mark Zuckerberg. And they'll make a cartoonish representation of you, which is a, called an avatar in this VR ex- experience called the metaverse. And the idea is you will move between Facebook's workspace and other apps and other video games. And will your avatar change between these apps or will it stay consistent? Will your avatar stay consistent between these different apps in the metaverse? Now, what about when you engage with what if there is an AI avatar like there is uh, our friend Jean-Francois was in was in a headline himself yesterday. For precisely this, that his AI bot called Leah is uh, has an app, and people talk to Leah, and it's it's an AI person, and Leah could come into Clubhouse and start talking here. So Leah 
also now has an avatar. She has a, a, a figure, a look. And that AI avatar could be, uh, we could print these on NFTs, just like people are printing stoner cats and crypto punks and wacky whales and silly walruses or whatever on NFTs, making a series of these characters and avatars on NFTs, you could make a series of AI avatars and AI beings on NFTs, and you could buy them. Well, isn't the issue that this gives you some kind of proof of possession, right? So right. People know that it's you, right? Because you have the NFT, right? But now you could own an AI, a virtual person who's based on an AI, based on GPT-3, in the metaverse. So you could create an account for your bot, your AI bot, who has a certain look, and they're being released as a series of 500 of them on NFTs, and you could essentially buy that AI bot that'll then appear in the metaverse on your behalf or separate from you personally. Amé? Just agreeing with you, Professor. It's just wild. They're combining AI with virtual uh, figures, uh, which are, we read the headline in this room yesterday with John Francois that he did a partnership for his AI bot with a uh, uh, a the visual team who builds these visual avatars for bots, and then you then you put them in the metaverse. That makes sense. We can imagine that already. We can we've. We can imagine bots in Clubhouse and in the metaverse, okay. But then the idea of selling them on a blockchain through NFTs, that's where you combine, <laughs> wild, combining all three of these things in one headline. Tyler, there was, um, there was something that was said in one of the groups on NFTs that was very interesting, which is that once people start being able to make, make themselves a, an identity in the metaverse, that at that point it's going to be very interesting to people right like there was a gucci bag sold for a hundred thousand in the metaverse and in real life gucci bags are like what twelve hundred dollars or something mm. and i find it very interesting because i asked the question because i thought that was a bit ridiculous but when the answer came across i was like oh that makes sense and the answer that came across was like look at the end of the day when someone's able to carry a bag in the metaverse that they like that's like kind of symbolizes who their identity is inside the metaverse, it carries clout, right? It carries provenance. And at that point, someone's going to now style their avatar inside like crypto voxels or metaverse, decentraliners. They're going to start putting jackets, accessories, clothing. And then now that's going to make that person have a persona inside the metaverse. And that's what people are now really kind of clicking into from the context of those that are creators and artists and more right side brain that they're more into that 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 interesting space of fashion wearing hoodies wearing designer goods stuff like yeah, that it's and, signaling yeah and this used to be what this is how the fashion industry came to be with seventh on uh, fashion on seventh back in the late 90s you know it's all about provenance and like who has it first and this is such a first moving market for these folks. And they are going to be the OGs 10, 20 years from now. And I would be curious to see how that uh, Gucci bag will increase in value. Yeah, luxury brands and NFTs, when, when everything gets sorted out in terms of everybody understanding how to validate provenance, this is going to be a huge, huge space. And then they don't have to require 
lots of third world labor to produce these things, it'll be all digital. Environmental impact is way lower. You know, the next generation is going to really appreciate that. Okay. Um, Oh, I just found developers are creating a world full of intelligent talking NFTs. And a, a separate decrypt is now covering this exact story. AI firm raises 16 million um, a, NFTs. Uh, Tyler, there's a, there's a very good Facebook one today. I'm not sure if you got that one. Maybe not. The, the Facebook's looking into putting um, similar sorts of intelligent NFTs into their metaverse. Yeah, um, and linking it up to their digital wallet. But if you haven't got it, it'll probably come up later because I tweeted okay. it out. With their own oh NFTs, with their own personalities, will be able to interact with each other in a parallel computerized AI powered world. Well, this is interesting because if you build an if you build a metaverse app, and it's an experience, it's a space, right? Slash experience, and you go into that experience slash space and you're the only one there, it's not going to be a pleasant experience. The developer of that space could pre-fill it with intelligent uh, bots that you wouldn't necessarily know are bots because they're getting... Well, wait wait a second. You mean that you've interacted with a bot that has non-zero obvious levels of creativity and critical thinking? Not No, because I've not seen somebody make a GPT-3 um, bot... Yet that I'm aware of that uh, could pass the Turing test, but hey, Tyler, yes, have you met Akasha? No, Akasha is an AI artist who's on Clubhouse. Andy, have you met Akasha? She follows me. She is actually an AI artist. Like I don't think she's a human being. I'd love to I'll, see someone putting something out there that, that at least does better than subversion uh, as a tactic for passing the Turing test. Right. I I'll, ha- get you her, I'll get you her name. Her, um... Many awesome. people in Clubhouse that I thought were bots. I'll put it that way. Yeah, she's Akasha, Tom, Akasha Thorne. She basically is an AI crypto art authority. And when you hear her speak, she sounds like an a- she sounds like an AI person, like basically like the boyfriend girlfriend on that on uh, Jean-Francois. We've we've had multiple people jump on stage here, where many yeah. of us on stage yeah. have thought, "Is this a bot?" But, well, it, but are you sure it's not someone that's a performance artist, a performance artist that who's who's trying to create the illusion of being a bot? Right. But I think what what we realized is that it's just ice. You know, it's mental illness is very interesting. You can put it in a box it's one of the unusual things about human beings is as as unique as we are when you actually start moving into the you know discernible um illnesses they kind of fit in a box and yeah. a lot of them yeah, we're, we're still like a bio machine seeking. and these illnesses yeah. show exactly how yeah and like these people would jump in and like you know all they're very cool people very nice people we've had lots of one-on-ones but when there's a big stage it's like uh showtime so the next headline from Evan, uh, uh, back to Samsung for a minute. Samsung supports retailers affected by looting with innovative televisions that uh, don't work if they've been looted. 
So this is happening in most notably at the moment in in South Africa. Johannesburg is where this article is coming from. It says Samsung South Africa has announced the implementation of a television block function on all Samsung TVs. Uh, the blocking system is intended to be implemented in respect to the televisions that have been obtained by users through unlawful means and in some cases stolen from Samsung warehouses. TV Block is a remote security solution that detects if Samsung TV units have been unduly activated and ensures that the television sets can only be used by the rightful owners with a valid proof of purchase. Perhaps an NFT? <laughs> the aim of the technology uh, is to mitigate against the creation of secondary markets linked to the sale of illegal goods. That's fucking genius. Well, I mean, we saw this in the mobile phone market and for I I every advance, right? I mean, I, I recently had a phone stolen that I'd left in a zip car accidentally and it, it, it just simply hasn't reappeared. And I can tell you that there there are so many ways of engineering around this with you know, special service codes and, and, and whatnot. There's black markets that spring up. It's, it's a welcome development, but there's a couple of things that, you know, are a little bit less rosy and that, that, you know, there are ways to circumvent the system. And then there are other things that are concerning, which is, you know, these are more ways to take something that legitimate purchasers have made and uh, disable it or shut it down or create new avenues for electronic warfare. Okay, so next headline up. SpaceX could launch a starship to the moon probably sooner than 2024. Is the update on that. Thank you, Poppy. Amanda sends this one in from MIT. Solid-state batteries now being developed could be key to achieving the widespread adoption of electric vehicles, potentially a major step towards carbon-free transporter sector. Yeah, that's, that's like a, a rather obvious headline. Uh, oh, I, I guess non-lithium solid. Are they talking about non-lithium solid-state batteries? I guess now being developed could play a key. Yeah, maybe so. Hope, hopefully so. Uh, U.S. Uh, this one from BB via Reuters says U.S. is near a deal for Nvidia supercomputer as it waits for a delayed Intel machine Aurora. The U.S. Department of Energy is nearing a deal to purchase a supercomputer made with chips from Nvidia and AMD. The next one, from, also from BB via The Verge, says Waymo, which is Google's self-driving car company, starts offering autonomous rides in San Francisco. Only a small group of trusted testers for now, though, because, and this is quite an interesting development, because uh, Waymo was operating in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, which is very flat, with very straight roads with not a lot of rain um, and very um, wide roads and very predictable turns. And it's very convenient for an autonomous vehicle as a city uh, geographically and not, you know, kind of, in many ways kind of optimal for autonomous, which is why they chose a, such a peculiar place as the first place to do their autonomous taxi service. Now they're going into San Francisco. That's a whole extra level of complexity for an autonomous vehicle, but they're doing it. They're now live on the roads um, in San Francisco, which is a mildly chaotic uh, major city. Uh, definitely not flat, anything but flat. So, and the roads aren't all that straight. There's a, quite a bit of turning. Ah, they're for the most part they're straight if you look at the grid of San Francisco. But um, yeah, not not perfectly so. Anyway, 
Um, interesting to see them getting into an area with a lot more pedestrians and erratic behavior on the roads, uh, which no doubt will be a challenge, but I guess seemingly they're up for it. So hopefully that's a sign will be coming to other major cities soon, Andy. But it's also close to their engineering team. Yeah, of course. Uh, that, that, that's the other major reason. For sure. The next one from BB uh, is that Kobe Bryant uh, celebrating uh, Kobe's legacy in L.A. and in, in worldwide. So there's a big celebration for Kobe Bryant Day. And then the next one is, uh, speaking of autonomous vehicles, Tesla did a really interesting thing. I just tweeted it out. You have to see it. Uh, Tesla drone show in Berlin above the Gigafactory. Uh, where it shows the Tesla logo, where they have a whole bunch of drones flying above the Tesla factory in the shape of the Tesla logo, the big T. And the T is floating above the the factory, and then it's spinning like a record. And so this spinning red glowing T, huge in the sky above the factory, in celebration of Giga Berlin factory, uh, which is the most un-Berlinish thing I can imagine. In fact, that would be, in from a Berliner perspective, the opposite of what anyone should do. That's an incredibly annoying thing from a Berliner perspective, to be a big company taking over the sky in a form of a huge digital billboard spinning around in the in the Berlin skyline. Um, you're, you're not scoring a lot of friends with Berliners by doing that one. But um, it's very American. <laughs> it's also quite Asian, um, <laughs> uh, but not very uh, Berliner. So anyway, uh, hopefully the factory's done. I, I assume that's why they're doing this uh, celebration. But you have to see what they did. It's quite remarkable. It's a, it's a drone show of a rotating Tesla logo above their factory. And the next one's from Professor Ossif. Uh, that live facial recognition technologies in is used in London and other major cities and towns. Yeah, a whole lot. And civil liberty groups demand a ban on facial recognition technology. Police and the Home Office have completely bypassed Parliament on the matter of live facial recognition technologies. And the bodies have also accused police uh, of bypassing the Parliament and they, they want the Parliament to have a say in whether or not um, they can use this facial recognition uh, as an addition to all of the cameras because London is covered in cameras. And the question is, can those cameras then be um, tied into a platform that has facial recognition? The very simple answer is uh, absolutely they can. And then that means anyone who does anything in London that's worthy of any note at all, they can go back and find out who that all those people are walking past that camera at any moment. Um, absolutely would make London uh, exponentially more safe, but uh, there's obviously a cost of civil liberties, as some would say. So the that's a debate uh, that certainly needs to be had somewhere. And the, I guess their point is that the debate was never had, that the police did it without asking or whatever. Maybe it is legal to do it, but people feel they want to debate it. So relates to the Edward Snowden video that he put out yesterday, like a 30-minute YouTube video on precisely this issue of uh, all of this tech is going to enable a lot more security at the cost of liberties, and we should not fall into that very easy trap is kind of the synopsis of his argument. The next headline 
somebody just sent in um, via Reuters. The headline says Chinese tutoring firms adopt to core subject ban with hands on courses. Chinese tutoring firms are having to learn new ways of making money after a ban on teaching core subjects left them promoting classes such as drama and even parental training in a scramble to replace at least a fraction of the once lucrative businesses because they're not allowed to do tutoring on the core subjects like language and science and math and all that, that you cannot no longer do those businesses for profit. So, but you could do tutoring on non-core subjects like drama. So who wants to sign up for our drama class? And uh, if you're an ed tech, that's what you got to do. Oh, but it's not just a drama class. It's dramatized mathematics. It's dramatized, right? Ah, like capoeira. Yeah, that that could be interesting. (laughs) It's uh, Karl Marx in haiku. Well, that was another headline that somebody just sent in. BB, I believe. Check this out from the BBC. Chinese. This is the BBC one hour ago, so this is kind of breaking news. China schools, Xi Jinping thought, quote-unquote, introduced into curriculum. School students will now have Xi Jinping thought as part of their curriculum. China will now introduce the political ideology of the Chinese president as its national curriculum. Xi Jinping thought will help teenagers establish Marxist beliefs, said the Ministry of Education in new guidelines. The ideology will be integrated from primary school up to university. This is the latest effort by Mr. Xi to consolidate the ruling Communist Party's role in different areas of society. In a statement, the Ministry of Education said it aimed to cultivate the builders and successors of socialism with an all-around moral, intellectual, physical, and aesthetic grounding. The guidelines include labor education to cultivate the hardworking spirit in education on national security. In 2018, China's top body enshrined Xi Jinping thought into the curriculum. Since then, it's been introduced across some universities and amongst political youth wings holding extracurricular activities in schools. Xi Jinping thought has 14 main principles, which emphasize communist ideals also. They call for a complete and deep reform and new developing ideas, promise harmonious living between man and nature, emphasize absolute authority of the party over the people's army, you know, so they can't do a coup, basically, Uh, emphasize the importance of one country, two systems, and reunification with the motherland. The new guiding... The new guidelines, however, will see a much more extensive rollout. Primary schools will focus on cultivating love of the country, the Communist Party of China, and socialism. In middle schools, the focus will be on a combination of perceptual experience and knowledge study to help students form basic political judgments and opinions. And in college, there will be more emphasis on the establishment of theoretical thinking. The ministry is also working on including themes such as party leadership and national defense education into the curriculum, according to an education ministry official. Previous Chinese leaders have come up with their own political ideologies, which have been incorporated into the party's constitution or thinking. But none of none, but none besides party founder uh, Chairman Mao have had their ideology described as thought as Mr. Xi is now doing, which is at the top of the hierarchy, and only Mao and Deng Deng Jinping uh, have had their names attached to their ideologies. Okay. BBC finally caught up. Did they mention that no more English exams in school? Oh, that's right. No more more English uh, emphasis for Chinese uh, individuals. So, 
the the next one is from Jason uh, that earbuds that can read your mind retrofitting wireless earbuds to detect neural signals and relaying the data back to a smartphone via Bluetooth. Researchers say the new ear EEG system could have multiple applications, including health monitoring from keypads to touchscreens to voice commands step by step. The interface between users and their smartphones has become more personalized, more seamless. Now the ultimate personalized interface is approaching issuing smartphone commands with your brainwaves. It can read your fucking mind. Your I- Hey, Siri? Hey, Siri. My Siri's going off right now. Yeah, sorry about that. that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Communication between brain activity and computers known as brain-computer interfaces have been used in clinical trials to monitor epilepsy and other brain disorders. BCI has also shown promise as a technology to enable a user to move a, process, a prosthesis simply by neural commands. Tapping into the basic BCI concept would make smartphones Smarter than ever. Research has zeroed in on retrofitting wireless earbuds to detect the neural signals. The data would then be transmitted to a smartphone via Bluetooth software in the, in the smartphone and would translate different brainwave patterns into commands. The emerging technology is called Ear EEG. Ricky Mueller, assistant professor of electronic engineering and computer science, has refined the physical comfort of EEG earbuds and has demonstrated their ability to detect and record brain activity with support from the Baker Fellowship Program she is building out several applications to establish Ear EEG as a new platform technology to support consumer and health monitoring apps. So this, you- this is like the personal jetpack of uh, communications technology, right? If you think about it, Clubhouse is proof that the most efficient brain-to-brain communication is, is orally. We, we can signal with great subtlety and we, we basically suck at this right now with the existing RL interfaces that we have with computers. And, uh, you know, all we need to do is focus and refine that. But no, we're going to switch directly to brainwaves where we don't have a fucking clue what is actually going on back there it, 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 at a level in which we, we can meaningfully uh, Im- implant this. Right. And, and we're going to go straight to the, you know, that's why I'm calling this the, the personal jetpack. Right. It's it's sexy. But the, the, the fact is, we're not even doing well. The high bandwidth interface that we have right now that you can't even get Siri to activate with. Yes. However, here's here's the interesting counter argument. I've seen and even played with uh, a little headset device. It's very tiny. You put it on your temples. Um, it's trivial technologically. It's just sensing minuscule movements in your near your temple area. And two people put these both on together. There's a, a remote control ball, soccer ball, and a little miniature soccer field in between you. And then you you kind of sit behind. You know, it's like a it's like a game. In the soccer... I'm not saying it's not valid. It's, it's just the most expensive way possible of, of accomplishing the interface. Maybe. My, here, but in this case, if you wore earbuds that can detect minuscule movements and then you train um, little operations like unlocking your iPhone or turning on the flashlight or uh, what are things that you would want your phone to do that you don't even want to verbally tell it to do. Hit the uh, mic on Clubhouse. Yeah, mute mute my <laughs> mic. 
you just think mute my mic and it mutes your mic. Yeah. So the point is, is you could, and this person claims that they've done this where they've made earbuds that you wear all the time that can sense uh, and that you can train. And they, they talk about it in the article where in the same way that you train Siri with your voice or Alexa with your voice, you would train these, these little piece of hardware where you'd say, okay, when I think this, execute this um, command as a replacement for an audio command. And she says it works and it probably does work. Like I said, I was able to move a soccer ball with my head with incredibly little training. It took me about 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. you know, things are proven to, 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 to work at, in terms of, you know, can you implant these devices say into animals and get them to do things? Uh, can you, right? We, we've, we've got lots of experience with it. My, my, my point is not to say that technology isn't real. My, my point is to say, uh, you know, it's, th these make great headlines, but, but they're un unlikely to be implemented uh, in usable ways anytime soon in terms of consumer electronics. Yeah, they need good use cases. And that's what um, Apple's notoriously good at. I'm, I, that's why I was trying to figure out what would be the best use case of thinking a command to your phone, for example. Well, I, I like your mute case. Yeah, I'm just trying to think. There must be you need really strong use cases, and then people would adopt it. it and, I mean, the the mute thing is the biggest weakness in the entire AirPod franchise. I mean, like you have your fancy AirPods that you can't even tap to mute, right? You have your um your 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 expensive over the ear ones that you still need to go grab a phone to mute. Like and and, and like they could have solved that really easily. <laughs> and that's just what Andy's saying, right? It's well, like if you could, if it could sense, you know, when you're listening to music and someone comes up and tries to talk to you, that feeling that you have, uh, oh, like an auto pause when your attention is turned elsewhere. Correct. If it could sense that your attention has shifted from the music to the lips of, you know, to your eyes, because it can, you know, there's a strong shift of focus. If it could sense that shift of focus, it might mute the music for you so that you could hear the person. That would be pretty cool. That would be an amazing demo at an Apple keynote. Like, Harry, in the new Apple AirPod Max, you know, here's what you do now. People would be like, holy shit, I got to get those. Because it, it only takes one or two compelling demonstrations of, of viable use cases that could translate into lots of orders um, as an upgrade to, you know, next year's devices. So if, as, oh, if they have yeah. one or two of the, if they add one or two use cases each year, you'll continue to buy the upgrade uh, hardware each year. I have a question. Um, it's just a related to that, but may not be exactly what it is. Um, I use the, the Apple Power Beats all the time. Yeah. And sometimes even the Bose one, Bose, Bose one. Um, uh, and it hurts my ears. <laughs> so I'm just asking everybody if if it has a long-term effect, if you wear these things long time, because I'm noticing like I have been using it too much and uh, and I'm feeling... It depends on the size my... of the ear canal, right? And I have teeny tiny ear canals that uh, I basically can't really use much of anything, even with these customized... Uh, uh, things that, that uh, I can use to insert. And, it, it, you know, for many other people, it's not an issue at all. Yeah. Yeah, but I also wonder, it, it's not only like the ear canals and sometimes I feel it on my ear knobs and stuff like that, but 
I just wonder medically, even inside your, you know, head hearing, if it has any kind of long-term effect, if you use it for too much. I just if it's wonder too loud. That. Yeah, if it's too loud, maybe. Tyler? Yeah. Could I defer the subject back to Visa really quick? Before you do, the next headline from the BBC, that sensors and AI, this is the headline, BBC headline, sensors and AI to watch social care patients data from sensors in patients homes will analyze will be analyzed to warn of health problems and this could be this this the point we're debating could be really interesting in the kind of senior care space where seniors are wearing this they and they fall down or you know something happens and they're not able to you know you have a stroke and you can't talk and now the earbuds know that you're in trouble and they call 911 or something like that so anyway um, I love the idea of a lot of sensors uh, with uh, seniors, um, but go ahead to me. Well, this is an interesting one, but it's a little bit of that rabbit hole research that, you know, I always tend to love. So Visa, I've done some research from a couple of days and Visa's kind of made some interesting choice on who is the token that they are leaning towards. And it's not going to be Ethereum. They're leaning towards Solana. And that, if you dig a little bit deeper into the Twitter, remember how we said about if you read the Twitter, the head of the, of the crypto division for Visa is a gentleman by the name of Guy Sheffield, and he's head of crypto. And less than a month ago, around July 21, he tweeted about FTX being who they're engaging with as well. They're talking with FTX, and that's Sam Bakeman-Fried. And he's been super, super bullish on not Ethereum, but Serum, which is a Solana blockchain product, which is more efficient. It's not more efficient, but it's more reasonable in terms of fees. And it's a layer two solution. So it's very interesting to see the workings. And that came out, he discussed that in May of 2021. So it's very interesting to see that like they've purchased this crypto punk for NFTs, but they have actually been in talks quite a lot already about what they're doing, navigating the space on the back channels or on the Twitter sphere, which is as we, I clearly have been in the space for a long time. And most of what you really want to know about Twitter is not going to come from the, um, it's not going to come from the main rags. It's going to come from inside the depth of the deep conversations that are being had by these executives and BlackRock and all these venture capital firms that have been navigating this experience through Twitter. So if you really want to see what's happening, go deep dive into follow what is it is it moonrock ventures uh, tyler who is the big um who is the big uh, crypto investor venture capital is it is it moonrock Andreessen horowitz yeah 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 he's heavily in it and he's all over inside uh twitter about it okay when you dig so it's a solano solano what is it solana and then cardano as well cardano just became third largest coin in the, in the past yep. few hours. The thing is, well, is that what, you're see, what you're seeing now is that Ethereum, yes, is going through a little bit of a, of a... The thing is that Ethereum 1 is the layer 1 solution. Ethereum 2 is a layer 2 solution and it's faster and it's proof of stake. The Ser- Serum, Solana Serum token is Solana is the layer, a layer 2 solution. And so is Polygon, formerly Matic, is a layer 2 solution. So, and Cardano has been hustling because they've been working just slow and steady. So you are seeing a lot of navigation around these myriad of blockchains that provide 
really solid use cases to help people solve problems. That's it. And Solana did drop that crazy NFT that literally just put them on the, on the news a couple of days ago with those, uh, I don't know, that animal, that ape or whatever they had. Planet of the ape. They had, a plant, they had some ape that also sold out and really made them a player in the NFT space. But and minting on Solana is, is harder than minting on Ethereum because Solana is still a new experience for artists and it requires more steps to mint. So it's more decentralized in, in comparison to how Ethereum is operating at the moment with NFTs. Okay. Alrighty. Next one up, uh, Open Table, which is a, a very popular app in America for booking and reserving you know, a table at a restaurant and has now partnered with Clear to verify vaccinations uh, of people who are reserving tables at restaurants because many restaurants are only open to people who have proof of vaccination. And now you can do that through Open Table with their partnership with Clear. The, and the next one is one that you really have to see from the BBC about a robotic Zen garden. And uh, you can see in the photo that I just tweeted on Twitter at TNATW, uh, a, a Japanese garden in Tokyo. And these robotic arms are drawing in the rock garden um, figures in the rock garden. And it's the same robotic arms that you use to build cars, which are made by ABB, the Swedish company. And you can see the ABB arms in this photo. They're math, these, these huge robotic arms, you know, far bigger than people. I mean, they're like the size of a uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> and they're now drawing in the sand, just like people used to do with an Etch-a-Sketch, basically. And they can draw really amazing patterns in the sand, in the middle of the sand. And then people wonder, how the hell did you draw that in the middle of the, in the middle of the rock garden without leaving any trails in or out? So now you can see how they do it. Pretty clever. So the next one is from Poppy via CNN about an Irish tech company that helps kids' voices be heard, uh, building proprietary voice solutions for folks two to twelve years old, and and they're very young voices so now that they can be used to, with uh, kids can also use voice apps as well the next one is an interesting one about GoPuff which is back in the news yet again and we're, they've been coming up in the news quite a bit lately they are a an app where you can order all kinds of stuff and they will deliver it to you very quickly the 15 billion dollar startup promises 30 minute deliveries and now it's facing a worker Backlash is the headline from CNN. And you might be one. If you join us every day, you, I bet I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, didn't we just read about a similar headline about a similar company called Gorillas out of Berlin who was growing faster than nearly any app in history and they are also facing a worker backlash? Yes, we did read a nearly identical headline about a week ago about a similar 30-minute delivery company based out of Berlin, covering Europe, called Gorillas. Also, growing to be worth billions of dollars. I, they Also, about by the end of the year, they should be worth about $20 billion. Also doing 30-minute deliveries. Also having a worker backlash. What the fuck's going on that the both GoPuff in America and Gorillas in Europe, both doing 30-minute deliveries, both uh, becoming two of the fastest growing companies in history, reaching 
more than $10 billion of growth in, in a year and both having worker backlashes. So let's read this story from CNN. It says, GoPuff, a startup that originally launched to offer uh, hookah deliveries for college students and later food deliveries to help satisfy munchies, is rapidly establishing itself as the future of on-demand industry. The Philadelphia-based company has announced raising billions of dollars from investors to grow its on-demand delivery business this year alone amid a pandemic-driven boom for online shopping, but it's also raising a familiar set of labor concerns in the process. In an industry that prides itself on speed, GoPuff is one of several startups whose promise is being as close to instantaneous as possible. Better known services like DoorDash, Instacart, and Uber Eats leverage fleets of drivers who pick up and deliver items from retailers and restaurants. GoPuff, on the other hand, has a more than 450 micro-fulfillment centers in college towns and some major cities stocked with everything from food to over-the-counter medicine in order to better control the inventory and deliver products to customers within 30 minutes. That's the genius, by the way. They they aren't going into a third-party store and picking the shit out. They've got their own little robotic 7-Eleven, and they just, the second you order the shit, the robot goes into action, and within a minute, your order's ready. That's why they can do... And they, huh? and they, and they, just, and they just eat it on the unpopular items, meaning the margin, right? Like right. That's, that's kind of like what the, uh, the, the grocers or grocery store apps are doing. So, but Go, GoPuff's rapid growth, heavily fueled by venture capital, comes at a time when there's a heightened attention to gig worker pay and benefits, or lack thereof, at both the federal and local level. GoPuff relies largely on the same controversial playbook as some of the larger on-demand companies in terms of how it works with delivery drivers. And in its push to fulfill deliveries in minutes instead of hours, GoPuff's model may only exacerbate existing gig economy labor concerns. Recently, some GoPuff delivery workers have taken issue with how they're treated as independent contractors for the company, a classification that helps on-demand companies to cut costs by not obligating them to provide benefits like minimum wage overtime and unemployment insurance. These delivery companies typically defend this arrangement as allowing their workers more freedom to be their own boss, but some GoPuff workers have said uh, they've experienced what they feel is a lack of independence. Well, it's up to you. You You can't stop. You're an independent contractor. It's up to you if you want to work for them or not. No one's forcing you to work for them. And you're claiming you have a lack of independence? You can stop anytime you want. In in their day-to-day work, drivers say it feels as though they're, they report to managers at GoPuff's fulfillment centers who are classified as employees by the company rather than just dealing with the whims of an app, as is the case with other gig economy services. Ah, because they have to interface with a boss, which they don't want. They want the autonomy of just being like an Uber driver. These managers control how many shifts to post to meet demand some workers said they communicate with managers using Slack and notify them when, for example, stopping for gas. As GoPuff drivers, we work on set shifts. We have no ability to reject orders or even to report managers who control almost every aspect of our work from what jobs we get to whether we're fired. A group of workers said last month in an open letter done in collaboration with Working Washington, a Seattle-based workers' rights organization. And again, it's the fucking unions in both examples. In the group- Tyler, can we walk back that statement again? It's like the boss controls what jobs they do and whether or not they get fired. I mean, 
I know it's 2 a.m., but Jesus Christ. According to Working Washington, several hundred drivers have since signed on to a letter. Yep, that's how it starts. You start unionizing with a signature collection so that you're giving a strong indicator that you're willing to unionize without actually saying you're going to unionize and getting yourself fired. In response, GoPuff said fulfillment center managers do not have managerial authority over the drivers. Yep, and nobody claims they do. The company said workers have the choice for whether to secure shifts, which are eligible for minimum pay guarantees that can provide baseline earnings, etc. So it's unions trying to unionize GoPuff, just like they're trying to do Gorilla in Europe. And the unions then use the media to uh, run stories like this. So there you go. That's the similarity. Did Charles raise his hand? Is Charles in the audience? I haven't seen Charles. Yes. Yeah, there he is. Charles. Morning. Welcome back, Charles. Better late. I think they're gonna I think they're gonna win on the labor fight, by the way. Who who's uh, they? The the they is the unions here. I think they're going to win this one. There's too much direct. There's too much direction of how they do the job, yes. which makes them employees. That's the problem, right? So, but that can be resolved. I mean, the GoPuff would then need to kind of make a more uh, Uber-like experience for their delivery drivers, essentially. Right, but remember, Uber more or less lost in California. Those people are effectively employees, right? So. And in California, I think was one of their biggest markets in the states. So I think the the days in which gig workers can kind of get away with this sort of thing, I think they're you know basically people are how to put this. Um, the labor unions are increasingly racking up victories by by basically taking advantage of the media, the technology. It's really hard to to change your entire technology on the fly as you're building a business model, especially after you've raised a few rounds. So I think that this is. Uh, not going to go the way of sort of more free free labor flows as we might otherwise think and certainly in the industrialized countries i think the main complaint in here is in part the interfacing with these managers who dictate their shifts and schedules that part i would not be so difficult to re- uh, remove the need to interface with the human and just say here here's an opportunity to take this shift who wants it uh, First come, first serve. Uh, it's similar to an Uber ride, essentially. So it's. Um, I think they would get all of the shifts filled in that way. They, of course, they would need to test that out. But technically, that isn't wouldn't be such a, a tremendous lift. Um, to, because I can I can totally understand their point of uh, I take I'm working this way because I like the autonomy. I don't like having a boss. I don't mind having an app ask me if I want to work, like an Uber ride opportunity. And I don't mind the opportunity if GoPuff app says, hey, do you want to take this shift or not? You you know, whoever first come, first serve. It's like whoever clicks the button first, just like Uber rides. I imagine that's how they need to delegate out the shifts, not having a manager say, hey, Tommy, you're on shift five. Well, that, that's the issue. What are the power dynamics, right? Yeah. And if the power dynamics are way lopsided, right, then, then you can't have your cake and eat it too with yeah. respect to the, the way that the – the you know employee or contractor relationship is set up. Yeah, I mean the problem the problem in general is so much of our labor laws just need a total update. And when you have a lot of these 
you know, like you have Walmart, for instance, where they have employees that are also like registering for government benefits. I mean, are they really employees or are they like dumping them onto the, onto the, you know, onto the, uh, the welfare rolls? I mean, there's a lot of like interesting, weird questions of how technology is changing, how labor markets work. And I, I think this idea of like, you're either an employee or a contractor, it's just very untenable in the modern age. You sort of have to figure out something, some kind of new arrangement with these things. So when was the last decision in California, the, the prop 22, when, when this came out? At the very end of 2020, so less than a year ago, California voters approved Prop 22, which exempts Uber and Lyft from having to classify their workers as employees. Right. My recollection, though, is that even though that went into effect, it's still being litigated now. So I, I don't think it's totally changed, but I, I could be wrong about this. Um, my, my recollection is it's still going through the courts still. Yeah. Uber and Lyft have threatened to leave California if they were forced to classify their drivers as employees. So if uh, even if they are to lose the appeal um, or and of course, then there will be this endless chain of appeals that this could go quite high. Is it going to the, the California Supreme Court or something? I imagine. Um, I don't know. But I, when I was last in California, the price of an Uber was like 80, 90 oh, yeah. percent higher the, the than it was a year before. Absolutely. The prices of we we uh, Chris has said that as well. The prices have gone sky high in in, in many areas. Um, there's, and there's no like regular like, you know, normally you could have a super shuttle that's running like clockwork everywhere in Southern California. And now they're just not even running anywhere because Uber's just totally destroyed them. So the if they were to shut down in a state, if they were to lose of course they would because they can't risk it going to spreading to other states and they have to send a signal to the unions. Okay. You won California. We shut down California. Go ahead and try another state. Let's see what happens. And so I don't know that the unions would continue to push and invest. Um, if the, if the response is that the, they'll just stop doing business in that state. Well, th th this is a long-term issue that has so many different facets that have to be worked out, right? The, the, the fact is that the very relationship between uh, the person providing the labor and the, the person offer offering the, the opportunity to work, right, it, it's undergone the most serious transformation uh, that, that, that we've seen, you know, ever. Right. And as long as that's still in this fluid stage and many, many different things are, are possible, but yet th there are tax and uh, regulatory. And when you think of all the different control points that have traditionally existed that that aren't really able to cope with the fluidity. Right. There is so much still to be worked out. It could well be that these business models don't work in all areas, too, which, of course, would yeah. also be you know, we, we would ultimately see in the stock price. Yeah. The, but the autonomous vehicle bit is coming uh, within set confined geographies, like grid like little geographies like uh, Westwood, California, you know, Santa Monica would be actually not so difficult. Um, so everybody keeps saying, you know, it's always no, it's, it's happening. Five years oh, I, I can name 20 cities right now that are actually doing it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, no, no guess. I'll name the cities. I'll show you the headlines with the right. with videos of the vehicles on the ground. I mean, the the NHTSA case right now, the Department of Transportation investigating 
Tesla, I think, is a sign of things to come. Waymo or, is live doing autonomous taxis in San Francisco today. Interesting. Have they have they hit anyone yet? Or no, is it, uh, I, I um, imagine I am. Ah. Not only do I imagine we will hear about that within less than an hour if that should happen. I imagine there are companies trying to make that happen. Yeah, that would so, be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but that Did was, I think, a test that um, they're not um, the license they got in California. At least the article I read a, a couple of weeks ago or something is that they could do a voluntary kind of passengers to just do kind of testing. It's not I don't think it's for work. It's not they cannot charge or anything like that. It's still on a testing kind of uh, getting a license for having those autonomous cars in, in restricted areas. I think that's what I read. So here's a related headline that Cheryl just sent in just now. 7-Eleven in Japan to do home delivery to tw- from their 20,000 shops. The Although oh, not- I- I imagine human though. I, it doesn't. This isn't about autonomous, but it says. I see the Waymo. The Waymo story today, as of twenty-seven minutes ago, Alphabet's Waymo has started self-driving rides in San Francisco for the public. Operators are in driver's seats with hands on their knees, but prepared to steer in an emergency. So they haven't eliminated the driver yet, um, Be- because they-, they have saboteurs who are going to jump in front of those fucking cars. You can bet your fucking life earnings on that. Yeah, probably. So Seven Eleven plans to expand its delivery service to almost all of its 20,000 stores across Japan, bringing products to customers' homes in as little as 30 minutes after receiving an order via the internet, a company source said Tuesday. By the way, this is already happening in Thailand. We, we have this in Thailand. And Th- Thailand has way more 7-Elevens than Japan. So 7-Eleven in Thailand is not thought of as like this futuristic city or whatever. The the issue is 7-Elevens are so key to life in Thailand uh, and they are so dominant. They don't have any competitors in Thailand the same way 7-Eleven in Japan has Family Mart, Lawson's. What's another one, Cheryl? Uh, 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 Sunkus. Yes, everything. Seiko Mart. Mini Stop. Mini stop, yeah. Yes. So the the big one Even, is Family Mart and Lawson's and Seven Eleven. Seven Eleven. Seven Eleven. So Seven Eleven is the big one in Japan, and yet in Thailand, it's there's only Seven Eleven. There's it's just they dominate. I mean, I would I would estimate half of everybody's money goes to Seven Eleven in Thailand, and that's how big of a thing Seven Elevens are in Thailand, and so. Thailand's because during the lock, well, it wasn't a lockdown, but during COVID, people didn't want to leave their homes. 7-Eleven said, hey, we will bring it to you. No problem. Here's our phone number. And they started posting their phone numbers at the cash registers. Just call us for your next order. And people have been doing this. And uh, Lakeisha and I were wondering, this has got to spread uh, because it's so successful in Thailand. And that's why I'm surprised uh, Cheryl just sent in the headline that Japan's now going to do it for their 20,000 stores. The largest convenience store operator in Japan hopes to boost profits and amid growing demand for home delivery with people refraining from going out due to the coronavirus pandemic. A total of 550 stores in Hokkaido and Hiroshima Prefecture and Tokyo are conducting a trial. The trial ended expected to expand to 1,000 outlets mainly, blah, blah, blah. Although the service will be left to the discretion of store owners, so it's the same as Thailand. Uh, the majority of stores will likely introduce the system by 2025. The difference is to all 7-Elevens in Thailand are owned by one owner. 
around 2,800 food items and this daily product will be delivered. Yeah, nothing, nothing is left out from the store. Membership registrations required. That's interesting. We don't have that. And um, except uh, currently Genie, a Tokyo-based subsidiary in Gifu, partly provides delivery service. Rival convenience store chain operator Lawson has already started to deliver uh, daily products as well as drugs without a prescription via Uber Eats. Ah, so Lawson, which is a competitor to 7-Eleven in Japan, did a is working with Uber Eats for delivery. That's interesting. The the other interesting thing in in Thailand is in 7-Eleven, it's the actual cashiers who bring you the do the actual delivery on their personal bikes, their motorbikes, and. What's interesting about that was... But this, that, that's a temporary thing, right? That was improvisation. We've had it for over a year nonstop, and there's no sign of it slowing down. In fact, it's people are doing it more than before. That's why we're saying now this has got to get adopted elsewhere because it really has a nice product market here fit in Japan. And, and 7-Elevens, when, when it first started, when, when people stopped... Uh, going out as much i think seven i i know because i go to seven eleven at least twice a day the the initially walking into the Seven Eleven, there was a notable lack of customers and there was the team members were standing there doing nothing because they usually have about five people working inside and they're just sitting there doing nothing and then they realized well if our team members are standing here doing nothing they're employees either we lay them off or we put them to work Stores started putting up their phone numbers. We'll deliver it to you. You text message in. Everyone uses the Line app here in, in Thailand. It's, it's the main messaging app. So they put their Line number. You send them a Line message. They bring your order, usually within 10 minutes. So depending on how far you live, of course, but the, the staff, the actual store cashiers, get your order, throw it in a bag, throw it on their bike, bring it over to you. Because everyone is in within five minutes of a 7-Eleven in Thailand. So... um. It's been wildly successful, and that's why I'm saying I it put all the employees to work. I think it even has increased the amount of orders from 7-Eleven. I think 7-Eleven's seen an increase in business because most of the other stores uh, lost business because they weren't doing delivery, and I think that's why Japan's now going over to delivery. Cheryl, have you seen this delivery in Tokyo or Tomoko? You know what? I have a 7-Eleven just downstairs within one minute. <laughs> yeah, everyone does in Japan, though. No, so I have no need for delivery. Um, maybe Tomoko, you have any comments? I don't have any 7-Eleven store near my house, so I have no idea. Where do you live that you don't have a? Well, you have, <laughs> you have, you have a. I have you, two, you have... No, I have three family marks. Okay. So. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, that's impossible to not have a kombini near your house in Japan. By the way, so they prefer family chicken. Yeah. Yes, very much. By the way, yeah, many Japanese and myself as well prefer Family Mart when we're in Japan. So, um, we don't have that choice in in Thailand. But um, anyway, you're gonna have delivery very soon. Very good. Yeah, I imagine. Tyler. Yep. My point is, is that the Family Mart, which is about equally big in Japan to Seven Eleven, yes. is if Seven Eleven is doing delivery for all twenty thousand locations. Family Mart is probably going to have to do it as well. Go ahead, Joe. Ah, no, I uh, just got an article from Charles. Uh, U.S. government agencies plan to increase their use of facial recognition technology. We talked about this one yesterday in this 
in this room. Is that it? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yes. Okay. He just sent me. <laughs> okay. So from Technology Review, it says, um, I remember this one because it was a bit paywall. U.S. government agencies plan to increase their use of facial recognition technologies. And a new survey shows the controversial systems are poised to play an even bigger role in federal business. A 90-page report published Tuesday by the U.S. Government Accountability Office, the GAO, details how federal agencies currently use and plan to expand their use of facial recognition systems. Ten of 24 agencies surveyed plan to broaden their use of the technology by 2023. Ten agencies are also investigating in investing in research and development for the technology. The report is the outcome of a study requested by Congress on federal agencies' use of facial recognition during the fiscal year 2020. It characterizes the use of of the technology as increasingly common, with most agencies surveyed using it for cybersecurity, domestic law enforcement, or physical security. The report also asked all agencies that participated in the study about their future plans for facial recognition. No doubt they're going to use it. It's the best. If you are in the business of looking at photos or videos to figure out what happened, you would be a fucking idiot not to use this. What are you going to do? Look at a video and be like, hmm, we now have a male suspect about five foot eight, uh, uh, could be anywhere between 20 and 60 years old because they're wearing a mask and a hat. Um, and they have denim pants and a red jacket. Your odds of catching that person are one in, I don't know, 200,000. And then you add in facial recognition and now, oh, we know who it is. Oh, we just saved ourselves a year of waiting for somebody to try and figure out who that person was. Of hoping that another person matching this description walks into another similar scenario, commits the same crime again. And then this time we luckily had another camera that caught their car license plate. Like that, that, and it's, and it's like, do you want us to set up in front of the house? And it's like, no, we're just gonna run the ring camera net. <laughs> yeah, let's go send, a, let's go send a team of police uh, driving around the city for months looking for this person, or, or, or we can use this app that just tells us who the fucker is. Hmm, I wonder if which one we're gonna use. Maybe let, here, let's Chris. Um. There was a crime. Somebody just broke into my house, right? We have them on camera, right? So uh, to figure out who it is, we could put up signs all around the neighborhood, right? And hopefully somebody turns them in. Or I use this app who just tells me who the fucking person is. Which one are we going to use, Chris? So in the early days of Clearview, I used to just wake up every morning, go for a walk, have a coffee and then solve a crime and send it in because there'd be all these like law enforcement agencies that would put up like, do you know who this person is? And it's like, well, let's find out. And, and like in five minutes, I solved a whole bunch of crimes every morning for going on like a month and a half. And it was kind of ridiculous. And I, I sometimes wonder if like maybe that's the solution to a lot of these problems is just handing it to responsible people for five minutes at a stretch to solve these crimes. I wonder if you could have uh, how much monetization, like the, the, if you knew, if you were confident in finding the person and there was a reward and you said, you know what? I see how much your reward is. I have the person. I know exactly where they are. I can lead you right to them. If you double the reward, 
<laughs> and then figure out how much you can monetize in a month uh, of doing that with a small team. Um, yeah, the source community like Bellingcat and all that sort of stuff that's going on right now using s- satellite imagery. I mean, I think that that could, could very well come into play. And you saw with the so-called sedition hunters where they were hunting down people who were involved in the January 6th riot. And many of them were, um, you know, stay-at-home moms, you know, like retirees. And they were buying facial recognition, uh, uh, you, know, you know, publicly available ones from, from I think, the Russians and the Polish. And so it's just kind of funny, like, the way in which people, like, as, you know, some people do crossword puzzles, other people are now solving crimes using second hold on second second scenario you've got your immigration border check right at any airport in america and you've got people leaving afghanistan right and maybe some of them are getting on flights in tehran and laying over in istanbul coming to the u.s whatever you got you have all kinds of unknown people coming into the u.s who may or may not have legitimate passports most of them do of course not all of them do. I, let me tell you, Bangkok is the world capital of fake passports, by the way. So the and and the best forger creators uh, of fake passports for what are, by the way, there's there's story. These, these are just not small stories that have come out in the past few years. The best counterfeit passports that are undetectable even by the Israelis are Pakistani uh, passport creators now living in Bangkok. And they're yeah, eight- I, can confirm, I can confirm this, by the way. For a long time, DHS had no eyes on how to deal with these people because their passports, in many cases, were actually even better than the ones. Like sometimes they would buy machines that DHS itself used to make the passports. So it's just kind of hilarious. Yeah, there's they're they're making legitimate uh, counterfeit passports that are und- they're not they're not uh, they're undetectable because they're not fake they're they're yeah, every... they were they were they were weren't they just injecting them into the passport system right yeah that's right yeah the, the chinese espionage stuff too like they have they have legit pass i mean they have legit driver's licenses and legit passports they're just not legit you know what i mean like it's so it's you... kind of interesting i've seen them in person and been like holy shit like this is this is the real deal and then... there's always a human involved in the last line right that's the challenge yeah, and so in the case of facial rec, though, what they'll do now is they'll run those passports and they'll be like, hey, wait a second. You say you're this person. Right. But we have you on social media in this country under all these other names. What the hell's going on here? Yeah. But and that's how they stop it. Thailand added biometric identity to every person entering Thailand about three years ago. And for this reason, which was all of the fake passports. And but the point is. Do you want to actually know who the person is coming in or not into your countries at your immigration desks? Do you want people coming in with fake passports or not? There's a technology to solve this right now. It's, re- it's actually very simple. Do you want to use it or not? Y- yes, sir. It's kind of a binary question. And if you don't want it, why not? Well, there there are some people in the undercover world that don't like this facial recognition stuff because they want to spy on behalf of their own country. So what's interesting is like some countries are using this stuff to detect spies coming in and out of their countries and others are not. And as you might imagine, it gives a first mover advantage to the countries that are catching the spies at the border and it gives them a lot of you know protection. And that's sort of what's happening with the Chinese when it comes to Americans come, trying to come in. So the the issue like this headline is uh, 
uh, saying U.S. agencies are going to increase this. Uh, by the way, they're all using it and they're all going to increase it because bang for the buck. Uh, they have budgets and they love catching bad guys. It's part of their key metrics that they judge themselves by. And um, why, the the idea that they would not use uh, an amazing technology that make this is like the bet from their perspective as an agency who's in the in the you know police agencies anyone trying to catch bad actors this is you know their dream come true and it's you can't find a better use of their money so my favorite example of this recently is there's this guy who is running around committing all kinds of fraud in Florida and they they estimated it cost like ten million dollars. And fifteen years ago, he sort of fled the U.S. and he ran around Europe committing all these crimes. And he recently applied to get a bank account. Fifteen years after all of his like major crimes in the U.S. and Clearview caught him, you know, through him applying for a bank account. So in like less than a second, he was done in Austria. Whereas he. Um, you know, using a U.S. sort of system in the back end, but he had he had run around, you know, tens of million. You know, it, I think it ultimately ended up being like sixteen, seventeen million dollars that he'd stolen. So just kind of think about like the differential there is well, kind of. Crazy. What about breathalyzers? Do do we not like breathalyzers because we don't actually want to know if the person's intoxicated? And it, should we make those illegal? Uh, we we need to rely on the the police's intuition if the person's drunk or not to decide if they were drunk driving, or do we actually want them to have a tool to quantify? And you see what I'm saying? It's a it's a similar scenario. It makes it's a tool that makes their job uh, vastly easier. <clears throat> and there's uh, there's there's other uh, distinctions, of course. But the what about the people attacking the Asian uh, hatred hate crimes? When when you see elderly Asian folks getting you know knocked knocked out uh, in the middle of the sidewalk, do we not want to know who that person is and knock them out? Is there a good argument for not wanting to know who those people are, or arresting those people, or stopping those people from committing those crimes? So the I'm sure there's good arguments for uh, pri- you know the the civil liberties and privacies and uh, the, that's. You know, it's a good debate, um, but uh, net, net, I think for yeah. honest living guy who has nothing to hide, the facial recognition is definitely going to be more. You know, create a lot of convenience and uh, security. But for those people who like to do shady business, watch out. Well, the uh, Charles, did you watch Edward Snowden's um, thirty-minute video in the past twenty-four hours that he put out? Essentially, uh, in quick summary warning that we should not trade our civil liberties for um more safety i mean hasn't that trade already been made i mean i don't know it was made for convenience though that's the thing we gave it up for convenience and now we're we're being told to fight it fight for safety you know my complaint with all these privacy discussions is it sort of freezes a lot of the technology in place and it also doesn't raise a larger question about whether or not the privacy trade is worthwhile. I mean, it's one thing if Google is like basically selling your data to advertisers. It's quite another if people are like slightly compromising your your uh, privacy so as to stop you from being raped or murdered or the victim of a crime, right? Like these are different kind of things and lumping them all together, like hmm, a commercial purpose versus a public safety purpose. I mean, we routinely give up, you know, 
all kinds of things in order for public safety. Um, and so I just think, I think this kind of like trying to lump everything together here is kind of a, a misnomer and, and sort of like it cheapens the debate and discussion. Yeah, well, the, the problem is that the very conception of privacy is, is based on the fact that during the post-war period with the growth of cities, uh, we, we had the illusion of anonymity, which then we ascribed uh, this, this, you know, we, we, we called this right privacy when in fact, you know, we, we leave traces of ourselves all over the place. And anyone that's lived in a small town can tell you that, the, you know, the concept of privacy, it doesn't fundamentally exist. It's, it's an illusion that we create. The, the real underlying issue is who gets the power to use the data that gets collected and, and how is it being used? And if we could get away from, you know, the problem with the privacy debate is that, you know, we're basing this on this conception of privacy that, that's unhelpful. And instead of focusing on uh, the, the dynamics of power and control, which is really what the issues are, we, we end up getting into these arguments about uh, what is privacy and, and, and going down this, this never-ending rabbit hole of how much privacy is, is enough privacy. And I should yeah. say, too, this is not a... It's yeah. as if here. I think what Charles said is spot on. Uh, I agree that legislators should debate it. That's why I tweeted that article. Uh, but, uh, you know, we employ police to keep us safe. This is another means of protecting us. Uh, but as he said, it shouldn't be used commercially. Uh, so, yeah, I totally agree with you on that, Charles. Yes. Okay. So next headline here is from Poppy that bankers issue a seismic warning that Bitcoin, Ethereum, <clears throat> Cardano, and others could replace the dollar uh, in the next five to ten years. A, a Forbes says a poll of mostly banking executives found that most bankers think Bitcoin and digital assets could replace fiat currencies like the U.S. dollar within the next five to ten years. The next one is, oh, we covered the GoPuff one. Thank you. And the next one is the from The Economist. It says, demand for air conditioning is set to surge by 2050. Income growth, more than rising temperatures, is behind the boom. But researchers found that the use of air conditioners contributes to global warming, making life hotter for everyone else. And then a Forbes has a story about the, the biggest YouTuber in the world is a seven-year-old. Her account is called Like Nastya, and she's now launched an NFT with Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary V, and NFTs are no longer for the crypto-obsessed native users. With the recent successes of projects like NBA Top Shots, CryptoPunks, and Stoner Cats, it was only a matter of time before NFTs branched out into children's entertainment and toys for those new to crypto NFTs, blah, blah, blah. So seven-year-old social media influencer like Nastya has frequently been dubbed the most watched or biggest YouTuber in the world despite her young age. With an audience of more than 220 million subscribers across all social media, Nastya made the Forbes highest paid YouTubers list in 2019 and 2020. Originally from Russia, Anastasia and her family immigrated to Florida after launching their YouTube channel in 2016. 
Today, the channel is part of a network of 13 other additional channels and features localized versions of Nastia's videos in other languages, such as Spanish, German, and Portuguese. Each day, millions of kids and families from around the world join Nastia to engage with family-friendly content and learn about songs, numbers, nature, color, shapes, animals, and the importance of eating healthy food, being a good friend, and more to build her growing empire and further engage her fans. Nastia joined forces with Toy Powerhouse, Jazzwares, and Gary V's emerging metaverse company, Vayner NFT for her own NFT. Jay's Wares is previously known for action figure collaborations with the UFC, Fortnite, Pokemon, Peppy Pig, and Halo. Vayner NFT has onboarded several high-profile clients such as Budweiser and launched its flagship VFriends project with over $50 million in revenue. The collaboration will result in the first NFT for kids and families, although some NFT enthusiasts and collectors may even see it as a potential investment. The NFT collection will be delivered as a tiered program with several types of tokens an unlimited nastia for all token available during launch week only a special tier of social media engagement tokens a token that can be redeemed for a personal customized birthday greeting from nastia and a super rare one-on-one token enabling a special live video call with nastia herself uh, created in collaboration with gary vaynerchuk's vayner nft officially dropped today on the bitsky platform there you go. It's it's a permission contract system. Is it a good idea to have a seven-year-old running a multi-million dollar business? I don't think she's running it. I think she's uh, the, the Is daughter. Is it a good idea then to have a seven-year-old be exploited by adults to build a multi-million dollar business? Apparently for the adults, it's a good idea. <laughs> it's paying off with them. It's uh, and it's horrible. It's an interesting question. I'll just let that hang in the when, air, whether or not that's a good idea. Look at uh, what's happening with Britney Spears and uh, her father, uh, you know, <laughs> with the guardianship after he did that. And, and even uh, Macaulay Culkin, I remember. Um, so that's some issues that uh, kid millionaires come up with. Yeah. I, I've known a number of child stars and... All, for all but one of them, it has not worked out well for them. It's had a real, real consequences. That's an interesting point. Um, so we, we we will leave you with that thought, and we will meet again in four and a half hours. And thank you to everybody uh, for yet another fun headline-filled tech news around the world. And have a wonderful Wednesday, wherever you happen to be. And see, Thank oh. you. And one, one million doses of uh, donation from U.S. will arrive right now within 24 hours, Kamala. Oh, now America's oh, matching 